Hello, this is Future PMC. This week we are releasing an episode to the main feed of Moonrace Wireless, our patron-exclusive podcast series covering Turn A Gundam episode by episode twice a month. Following my spiel here, you'll be hearing our discussion on episode 3 with Ethan Hawker. This podcast was originally published on March 1st, 2023. We will be returning to bi-monthly coverage of Turn A Gundam when the current season of The Witch from Mercury concludes. If you want to listen to future Moonrace Wireless episodes when they release, or you want to enjoy our current week-to-week coverage of The Witch from Mercury, a podcast series we call Radio Free Mercury, please consider subscribing at $5 or more over on patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. We are giving the main feed a rest for May, to both prepare future coverage as well as keep on top of Radio Free Mercury and to allow Steven some extra time with Baby Hero number two. Please look forward to our Summer of Gunbuster, starting with the release of an episode discussing Blue Blazes on June 2nd. Thank you. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is an episode of Moon Race Wireless, our third episode of our patron-exclusive Turn A Gundam podcast. I am joined with, as per usual, PMC Trilogy. PMC, how are you? It's a nice podcasting evening. It's raining outside. The vibes are good. The vibes are incredible. I was playing Thunder Planes from the Final Fantasy X piano collections in my piano tonight, and as I finish the piece and the music trickles out at the end, the rain started falling. It was immaculate vibes. How poetic. You just had to dodge those lightning bolts. It did. I 300 did. times? Three, at least. I'm going to throw this question to our guest, Ethan Hawker. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Ethan, have you played Final Fantasy X? Final Fantasy X was actually, I think, the first Final Fantasy game I beat. Um, it's one where, uh, like, like, like my opinions of it have shifted dramatically, largely based on criticism, because I haven't revisited it since. It's like, oh, people don't like this game. I don't like this game. People like this game. I like this game. Um, I mostly remember it because I really liked the combat the last time I, I touched it. I was yeah. not a big ATB guy, frankly. Um, I, it's not bad, and I've been able to kind of move past it, but it used to be kind of a big obstacle in Final Fantasy games. But no, I remember um, uh, quite liking Ten and uh, enjoying it when I first played it uh, as a child who was like, I want to get the first one, um, who didn't really understand how video games... Like, I was very, very young when I got it. I think I was like nine, because I'd gotten into Kingdom Hearts, of course, and then fell in the Final Fantasy rabbit hole. As a result, you want me to drop a knowledge bomb on you? Well, you have to, you have to say yes for the bit to work. Uh, you have to say yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, the battle system designer of Final Fantasy X was Toshiro Tushida, the front mission like guy, the, one of the major creatives behind the front mission series. So that's that really does speak to Final Fantasy X's more strategic sensibilities. I love the battle system. Uh, Final Fantasy X, but I especially love the battle system of Final Fantasy X too. It's perfection. 
Yeah, for sure. Ten two, I played very briefly, like Friends House, and I remember being like, um, like the whole framing of it was kind of weird. But it's one of those ones where I kind of revisit, want to revisit it because I really like the job system, frankly. Uh, and it's okay. like, oh, a job system, but more fun dress up element to it. It's cute. Um, like it does doesn't take itself too seriously, and I kind of appreciate that now as an adult who isn't quite so self serious. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by Ten Two's treatment of society post collapse of a dominant religious organization surprisingly compelling i do love a society in the aftermath yeah of I, I love post yevon i'm all about it i didn't know if we're subtweeting turn a gundam here or not maybe you know i well, don't know uh, enough about it yeah we don't know enough about the dark history although i now i know it exists so i'm thrilled before we start talking about ethan like ethan and what he's been up to let's talk about ethan himself ethan give us your credentials um well Amongst many things, I'm on Twitter.com. Uh, you can find me at Sundown underscore McMoon. Uh, please follow me. That's why I'm on these things. It's to get more followers. No, it's to talk about giant robots, which is mostly what I do on Twitter. I also do art and that sort of thing. I have an animation background, so in terms of like my credentials to be talking about this, I do lecture on Japanese animation, especially for a local college, as a guest lecturer pretty frequently, amongst other types of animation. Um... Uh, if you're in the St. Louis area, actually, um, and you will be attending Anime St. Louis in late April of this year, I'll be doing a panel on, uh, particularly of interest to you, listener, uh, Yoshiyuki Tamino's early career um, prior to Gundam. I'm going to do an official announcement once they uh, publish the schedule uh, for this year's Anime St. Louis, but I'm very excited about that. I was supposed to do it last year, but scheduling caused issues, um, and I do do love Yoshiyuki Tamino, uh, that beautiful bald boy. Um and all of his uh, really cool early stuff. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there pre-Gundam um, that is like very representative of his later body of work, um, which is a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, beyond that, I do some writing for the website. Website? Website? No. Uh, the website, Zeke Film, um, uh, which I have not done in very long. Uh, my editor hates me, uh, but I'm going to be posting some stuff fairly soon about some neat science fiction films. Um, and the, the big thing I do is with a group of fat friends and local creatives, Bomb Squad Productions, uh, in our sh main show, bon uh, Bomb Squad Movie Night, uh, where we discuss films. It used to be branded as a podcast, but then we realized that was bad for the algorithm. Um, usually we talk about just general film stuff, uh, but every once in a while I'm able to uh, jam in a cartoon um, or an anime <laughs> that I like a lot. Um, Whenever I see the thumbnail for a new video, I could tell if it's yours from a mile away. Yeah, basically. It's pretty obvious. Um, recently, we actually did an episode. Uh, I wasn't on it, uh, but I want to shout it out just because it was a cool get. Um, we did the recent release film Missing um, with one of the directors of that film. It had two directors, um, which was, you know, a wide release Sony Pictures um, sequel to, I believe, the film Searching. Uh, again, I wasn't on the episode, so Paul, uh, pardon my ignorance. <laughs> But uh, it was really cool getting the direct another director on the show after we've done that previously with uh, it, the film Anna and the Apocalypse. But but if you want to hear me on an episode, it's almost always going to be a cartoon. Um, so uh, look at one of those. Um, we do a few mecha. There are a few mecha-related episodes. Uh, Megazone 2, 3, Part 1, Transformers the Movie, and of course, Macross Do You Remember Love, um, which was under the old podcast branding. And I always feel obligated to shout it out, mostly because I think that episode still turned out very very well um but also steven hero is on it um it's an awesome episode but i am 100 percent biased <laughs> just a smidge but no it was really exciting especially kind of coming up right off your guys's coverage of macross plus um getting steven's takes on 
uh, the original phenomenon, uh, more or less. Um, but no, that's pretty much the long and short of it, uh, mostly the long of it. Um, but uh, I'm happy to be here, and I'm very happy to chat about Turn A Gundam. Now, before we start talking about your history, or lack thereof, with Turn A Gundam, Ethan, let's start talking about what really matters, and that's brain-powered brains. So you started watching brain-powered. Shout-outs to Russell. Shout-outs to Russell. We should start doing, like, the, uh, really, like, diving into cate- catechism and going, like, at nomini patre, at filier, shout-outs to Russell. Um, apologies for all my non-Catholic listeners, which would include myself as a lapsed <laughs> Catholic. But anyway, um, you start watching Brain Powered, uh, which was the last mecha show I believe Tomino worked on before Turn A. I have a few questions for you. What prompted this watch? Does it live up to its infamous reputation? So uh, what prompted this watch was sort of this appearance on uh, Moonrace Wireless in that... Um, I knew I wasn't going to catch up on Gundam in time. I think it's at almost a running bit uh, where I, every time I'm on the podcast uh, here, I always mention, I'm so excited to watch Zeta Gundam. I haven't touched Zeta Gundam uh, since the origin. <laughs> I keep thinking about it because I think I just kind of lump it into like, it's not just Zeta Gundam, it's Zeta ZZ and Victory. Like they're all one unit, which is a terrible way of viewing media. Don't do it. Highly. Um, but uh, what I ended up doing was uh, Brain Powered was the only Tomino show besides Triton of the Sea, I guess. Um, but that's not subtitled, um, aside from like some crab stick uh, stuff. But um, Brain Powered was the last Tomino non-Gundam work um, pre-Turn A. A very a lot of stipulations there, yes, but um, that I hadn't seen, and I wanted to see his, you know, what directly preceded uh, Turn A after he'd been sort of. Um, I know Victory Gundam more by reputation uh, than anything, um, in that it's just a bloodbath. Um, so I wanted to see how stepping away from the director's chair um, for a television series for about five years, um, I believe, because I think I want to say Victory was 93, um, and coming back to Brainpowered in 98, just before Turn A. Um, and I, regarding its reputation, it, it's weird. I'm I'm so... Tomino brained. I watched Dunbine right before this, and Dunbine <laughs> is um, Dunbine's a trip. Um, it's it's very messy, but like the central conceit is so fun, um, and it's it's Tomino playing in those mystical spaces that he likes so much. Um, Brain Powered sort of has a reputation as uh, Tomino's Evangelion, mostly because Sunrise said, "Hey, make us an Evangelion because um, we want money," um, and I don't. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of mention of mothers, um, but that's kind of where the similarities end. Uh, if anything, like there's there's a heaping helping of like Dunbine, a little bit of Edeon, but um, in terms of its distinct incoherence, uh, it might be described as Tomino's Gundam Wing. Um, I think uh, like in terms of its its pulling from. Like, the incoherence is a bit more palatable because of, like, the mystical, the semi-mystical elements, I guess. Whereas Gundam Wing is just it completely hog-wild um, without much <laughs> reasoning. Um, uh, Brain Power uh, does do that Tomino thing where it just kind of throws you straight in the deep end without much explanation for what's going on. Um, but it's... I Honestly, when I heard Tomino's Evangelion, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a, a dirge. It's going to be a... 
uh, kill them all fast. And I was pleasantly surprised at how he uh, addresses all of that. There's some really great lines. Um, on the official anime Legends release, a character uses um, like butt thumping as a euphemism for sex. Uh, butt thumping. Yeah, like butt bumping or butt slamming. That's it. Um, I, I like the alliteration of butt bumping, though. Oh, uh, I, I messed it up. I'm so sorry. It's butt pounding. Uh, All right, I'm uh, back. That's pretty good. But butt pounding is very good. Um, and it's <laughs> uh, it's a child admonishing her mother, um, uh, which is very Tomino. Um, but I, I won't want to get in the de- into too many of the details um, to not spoil it. It has... Other- other than it also has a very good um the the jared todd guinness archetype um character probably the best he's so fun in uh, jonathan um jonathan is uh, you guys have seen the infamous clip of uh jonathan admonishing his mom for never getting a christmas present um like floating around on twitter i think so yeah yeah um he, he's also the one who says i'm going to take revenge on all women um in the like in terms of popular brain powered screenshots it's it's usually those two and uh butt pounding um <laughs> it's fun overall and it surprisingly kind of comes together you end up a little invested in it um but uh um overall i want to revisit it because i feel i feel like I, I there are things that probably went over my head um but the nagano designs are good and it looks pretty good a lot of the time so it's a fun ride certainly did you also pick up the Tokyo Pop the Tokyo Pop published manga release? Because I know you have that dank ass manga store, the local manga store you find the best finds at. That's actually a really good reminder because the last time I went there, they did have two volumes of it, and I didn't uh, check um, last time I went. But the, I swear those volumes have been there like since they, they move locations a lot, um, and I swear it's been there since like two locations ago. It sounds like a mystical like brigadoon. It moves locations, and you find the best finds. Yeah, is, is the Ark of the Covenant also there? Like, I'm concerned now. <laughs> Top men. <laughs> uh, I just uh, very lucky. I'm assuming it's a combination of weird locale being based out of the Middle West and um, just uh, like people dumping off there's because usually the best finds I get there are things that just have not sold in a long time. Like when I first went there or things that um are, are given are sold used and they give a really fair price for generally sometimes things are a little bit pricey but like i don't know they're, they're also nice nice people it's like mom and pop family owned yeah. kind of thing like uh by fans for fans they do a lot of gunpla events um oh yeah i'm, t- I'm referring to anime grohl for the listeners if you want to look it up in the um Maryland Heights area of Missouri uh, around St. Louis. Um, you should go there um, if you, again, are in the St. Louis area. Just like you should go to my panel. Tomino before Gundam. Um, but no, uh, the folks at Anime Grill are great, and uh, I find all sorts of uh, wonderful treasures. I found some good Tezka manga there just the other day um, that's like hardish to find, hard enough that it's a nice uh, little thing. But yeah, everyone's, like I swear every time I go in there, I find a little something. I would love to have a store locally like that. Maybe one exists, because I live in a densely populated area, and we have some mom-and-pop video game stores. But like I've bemoaned on the podcast before, the video game market is fucked. 
just the retro, <laughs> retro video game market is fucked. You could put that, clip that soundbite from Steven here and post it wherever you'd like, just because everything is so expensive. Um, but I feel like the anime, the anime manga market doesn't really exist in the same way. Yes, manga can get pretty pricey online because there's like no one interested in buying it. So if you know you have a volume that's out of print, you could put it on Amazon for seventy dollars. It'll sit there and no one will buy it. But like at a mom and pop place, that stuff. Either they don't know what they have or they know they can't price it too high because the market is not there to buy it. Yeah, I think that from what I can tell, I remember the other day, they're very uh, chill about me just like sometimes I have a bad habit of kind of like peeking behind the counter at like recent arrivals and that sort of thing. And they just said, hey, do you want to look at this stuff? Um, and so, of course, I, I sheepishly said yes. And it was just like a bounty of really good stuff. And they had notes on it where they're clearly like they're checking what it's selling for on okay. eBay and that sort of thing and pricing mm-hmm. it appropriately. Um, but they're still like undercutting the eBay sellers and that sort of thing, which is, uh, which is nice. Uh, yeah. it's pretty cool. You got to move stock, especially for manga, like the big O manga, for example, there might be five people out there who like want it and they're only mm-hmm. going to be willing to spend so much money. Yeah. And plus it's clear like the, their bread and butter is like, um, they have a dedicated room off to the side. that's all model kits. Um, basically, which is really cool. They have Macross kits now, too. Um, the Truly, the barrier there has finally been broken completely, um, which is really nice, like a dedicated table for them. Our mom and pop got some vintage Macross slash Robotech toys. They're selling for like $900. Oh, yeah, yeah it's the big one. It's like, it is yeah. the Super Dimension Fortress. <laughs> but there are a few other ones. I think they had some Valkyries, too. Those were also pricey. Yeah, a lot of those old, um, like, Takatoku and... Um, those uh what are those the super deformed chibi ones um uh, joke machines uh uh sell for a bunch of money which is it's really good name for a super deformed robot toy yeah no they've always been have a pretty good fair prices they also carry moderoids too which is like um, oh that see i'd start i need a few of those to decorate my room so i would totally purchase some yeah they have um like good uh, the moderoid figures which are like uh that's uh, Good Smile's model kit line, along with like Nendoroids and that sort of thing. Uh, but Moderoids are um, like usually model kits for kind of obscure anime. And guess what series just got Moderoids? It's brain powered, baby. <laughs> um, which is very cool. Um, Christmas came early for Russell and Rex. <laughs> finally, I get to buy uh, my own Christmas present. Uh, Jonathan's brain uh, gets to be my <laughs> Christmas present. I'm sure they're flying off the shelves in Japan. <laughs> they're going wild. Those Blu-rays are so weird. Like, cause like every, like every episode, cause I've, I have the DVDs, the anime legends discs, but if you watch the brain powered Blu-ray rips, like there are a few clips in them or just like scenes that m- must've had some sort of digital animation or were just shot on video. Cause the mm. quality just sinks for like no reason <laughs> and like some of them it makes sense because it's like oh they used an optical printer or some sort of digital effect on video and then sometimes it's just a scene of characters talking over a static painted background i'm like what happened here what happened here band i'm assuming no just nobody cared because it was like well we got to get brain powered out on blu-ray whatever um <laughs> but they're wrong brain power deserves better it deserves the best um there's an interview on the anime legends dvd set too uh, that makes it worth it in my opinion it's it's a text transcription but it's uh, yoko kano and uh yoshiki tamino talking like in the same room uh, it's delightful uh their uh patter is very very good she's a great interviewee 
um, when I put together the history episode for Macross Plus, a lot of her comments make had me in stitches. They're uh, very clever. Absolutely, yeah, and and she plays off Tomino <laughs> wonderfully. Um, so it was nice, uh, particularly relevant for Turn A Gundam, getting a feel for them, like talking about working on brain powered. Um, where Yoko Kano just straight straight up says right to Tomino's face, "I have no idea. I had no idea what you were looking for here." Like she, <laughs> of course, uh, elaborates, but um, like both of them are are very uh, quick to admonish one another. Uh, Tomino's like, "I got this music back, and I had no idea what I was going to do with it." I, um, but they they clearly are jabbing at one another. Thank uh, thank you to the transcriber of that interview for including uh, laughing in parentheticals. Uh, that adds a lot <laughs> to interview transcriptions. That's good for me making, too. <laughs> and that's I like uh, Tomin around this time for aesthetic reasons, because that's when he embraced his baldness and he's looking good. <laughs> that receding hairline had to go, and I'm glad he decided to just shave it off. Just wears hats now. There's a character in Brain Powered who I'm like 90% sure is a self-insert of Tomino. He's just he's a bald guy that with big, thick eyebrows that always wears uh, a tall hat. Um, I'm convinced of it. It has to be. I have to check. Maybe he's named after one of his many aliases. I could cosplay as Tomino because I'm bald. I have thick eyebrows, but my ears are wonky. I look awful in baseball caps. I only look good in the Irish caps. I can't remember what they're called. PMCs know knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know what you're uh, talking about. I don't know if I know that uh, they have a particular name, but yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. All right, then I'm gonna transition from Irish hats to turn a Gundam, as the good Lord intended. What's your history with the show? I think this is your first watch, yes? Which, when you mentioned this on Twitter, it surprised me a little, considering how well-versed you are in Tomino's career. I mean, you were giving a lecture on Tomino. Yeah, I think that is, um, to, to the larger point about Gundam stuff, I guess, is I, I'm i in the unique uh, position of being a Tomino fan more than I am a Gundam fan, uh, if that makes sense. That is a very unique position to be in. Yeah, um, because I, th- this is a weird explanation of it, um, but when I first got into Tomino's work, um, I was, I genuinely tried to af- support official releases, but by that point, all the Gundam DVDs were out of print and very expensive. Um, so I was like, well, these are legally out and available. Um, so when I was pursuing fan subs, it was for shows that I figured would never get a, re- a re-release. Um, that, that was actually why it took me so long to watch Dunbine, was because Dunbine had been licensed at some point. Um, and I was like, well, it might come back again. Uh, but nobody's going to license Elgheim or Zabungle, which I was wrong about ultimately, I guess. But, um, you know, that re- release of Zabungle was out for all of three months. So how wrong was I? Um, and I, that's how I watched Zabungle and Elgheim and, uh, in particular, obviously, Zambot 3 and Edeon. Uh, Edeon be invoked, uh, the finale film to that series, is literally just, it's just my favorite movie of all time. I think that's how we got to talking, because you slipped into my DMs, like Resident Evil 4 merchant style, and like, hey, you want some of these sweet-ass uh, Zambot 3 rips? And it's like, yes, please. Yes, uh, because I saw the screen, sh- screen caps were from the old DVD release, and I do not like that old DVD release. Um, it's, it's very yellowed and kind of faded, um, and I think... The, the artwork really sings um, in a HD release, especially with that Yoshinori Kanada uh, animation uh, that is in there all the time. Uh, same with Daitarn 3, uh, which both very pretty shows oftentimes. I hate making memes with um, standard definition frames. It makes me physically ill. I rarely do it, but I have a conundrum now. 
All right, G-Saver is going to be a bear to make memes uh, on for a variety of reasons. Number one, there's no subs. Like, I own the DVD, too. I also have a rip, courtesy of someone on this call. But there's no sub to English subtitles or subtitles, period, on either the DVD release or the digital release I have. So I could insert subtitles myself. Well, that's such a pain. And the quality is not ideal. I, I want people to see Mark Curran in his HD glory. Uh, again, I, I I feel like those uh, those effects would look uh, incredible in high definition. I think we all need those beautiful uh, early two thousand uh, mobile suits uh, in the highest possible definition. Um, I, I would like a nice HD re-release of G Savior at some point. I, I think it would, in its way, maybe do more harm than good, um, but. <laughs> It would do well in the states because Gundam sells decently, no matter what. There's enough. Of, there's enough of a sicko fan base that will buy it. Oh no, I feel like uh, G Savior. If it was like affordably, like movie priced, and the Gundam films tend to be a bit more affordably priced than some of the sets that Nozomi puts out, in particular. Uh, like not that they're like terribly priced, but obviously you're paying the Gundam tax there. Um, but like, absolutely, people would buy G Savior for the meme, like just to give it. Like it's a good like almost like white elephant gift um, for your anime inclined friends. Um, uh, I think uh, an HD release would do fine. Uh, I think uh, it would harm the film. <laughs> like you would be like, you need to saw, you need to watch this. And yeah. uh, please, it would be like presenting war for earth in HD. Please, Ethan, you can't, you can't read my mind and steal the joke that I was about to make. <laughs> no, no. I was literally about to say, please give me the war for earth. G savior HD double pack. <laughs> no i'm so sorry oh. i'm sure presto studio still has those masters they're kind of around because so. they they kick-started one or all of the oh, journeyman yeah, games they like did do a, a, six a, years ago yeah that's right that went nowhere right is that we talked about I think this on the or maybe one of the games got released right. i don't that, think it was a completely dead-end kickstarter that, that's a future giant robot fm episode when we talk about gundam 0079 the war for earth god bless it uh we'll people don't i haven't really publicly broadcast this people don't know how much like production material i have on war for earth it's wild someone someone slipped into my dms and said do you want all of it i said sure it's just sitting on my hard drive like production notes down to the day yeah this is tantalizing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't actually come through most of it, but that's um, a future to-do list. Future material, folks. We're teasing it right here. All right, before we jump into the episode proper, I have to ask you, Ethan, are you enjoying Turn A? I have never met anyone who hasn't enjoyed Turn A. Uh, no, I think it sucks. Uh, no, <laughs> it's great. Uh, I, I, I like it a lot so far. Um, uh, it's It's got good vibes. The first two episodes were very strong, um, and it's very nice that uh, Tomino is kind of allowed to, to slowly... Um, introduce things. Uh, a lot of a lot of Tomino shows tend to just kind of drop you right in. Uh, even even shows where he didn't want you to do that or didn't want to just drop you right in. Like Victory Gundam, kind of infamously had the episodes reordered so that episode four was episode one, uh, so they'd get the Gundam in there ASAP, um, so they could sell toys of it. That sounds like the perfect distillation of an executive note. Get the Gundam in there ASAP. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bright Noah and uh, Sunrise executives, uh, hand in hand. Don't don't bring my boy Bright into this. Don't dirty his hands. Well, he he puts the Gundam in there ASAP. It's true. 
That, he doesn't dirty his hands, but then he physically slaps someone to get the job done. Yeah, he he sent he'll send Kai flying, but it's Kai. It's fine. It's early, Kai. It's no big yeah. deal. Trauma. Who cares? So many people's lives are improved once they get to Ireland. Uh, Kai's <laughs> included. Why well, would be? Yeah, I, it, I, it, Steven, it goes down a little bit first. Yeah, I mean it goes down a little bit. Also, uh, we uh, reminder to to listeners: uh, Stephen has not watched Double Zeta. So I have not watched Double Z. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm also oh. talking about my enjoyment of Kai, though. Kai okay. goes, you know, Kai loses a lot in Ireland, mm-hmm. but I also okay. really gravitate to him in those moments. Kai uh, loses a lot, but he gains so much. Yeah. Uh, of, of our respect, mm-hmm. I guess. Our love and adoration. No, I joke, but Kai is one of the MVPs of that show. All right, my friends, let's jump right in, though. Unfortunately, there is no official release of Turn A, so I can't ask PMC to read some questionable back-of-the-box episode summary for After the Festival. But the episode opens. We have a new opening narration bit from Laurent in character. He recaps the events of episode two for viewers. So something I noticed, I think we all noticed, because this wasn't present at the start of the previous two episodes, is how episode three experiments a bit with form. It changes the expected order of things. We do get some episode summaries courtesy of Laron via the post-credit previews, but this is the first time we've had an opening narration bit like this. And it got me thinking of how this bit of information might coexist with the episodes themselves. Because we do know that Laron is potentially feeding this information back to the moon race. I guess we don't know that 100%, but they are doing observations. That's why they're here for these two years. So I do wonder if this intro is in any way diegetic. Obviously, it exists for a metatextual purpose, to fill in the audience and to onboard new viewers. But maybe this bit exists in-world, too. Like, maybe Laurent, as if he were on an episode of Survivor, recorded this testimonial for his associates back on the moon, which would be a nice bit of layering. I think I, I would rather the show just let it be and let my mind run wild with the possibilities, but it's a potentially fun little bit there. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth talking about just in the context that Turn A Gundam is interested in the, the recordation of history generally. We, we in this episode will later establish a capital D capital H dark history which uh, you know so there's clearly a concern about you know history what do we know what do we what do we not know who has what information um, so I think that is uh, definitely worth thinking about the way that the revelations presented in the show would be presented uh, you know in in universe so to speak. Also, now you have me thinking about who would uh, who would win uh, an episode of Gundam Survivor. Thank you, Steven. Hero Yui. Yeah, Hero Yui. Okay. He'd shoot. He'd you sure he'd would, he wouldn't just like explode himself and say mission accomplished. That, that to be fair, he might do that. He might also <laughs> fall flat face into the water. <laughs> PMC, have you ever played? And this, I'm throwing this question to you too, Ethan. But I know PMC is a fan of the series. Have you played Phoenix Wright Five yet? I don't think so, because I remember you played Apollo Justice last. That's the last one I've played. Yeah. All right. In in Phoenix Wright Five, it's uh, there's something that happens called the Dark Age of the Law. You would just argue that's law. Period. Yeah. It's 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 very funny, um, but I couldn't help but think of that when you said it in that way. Yep. 
Ethan, have you played any Phoenix Wright? I've played uh, the first case of the first game. I, w- I want to play more. I like uh, I like the Danganronpa games. I like like uh, VLR or Zero Escape um, and all it's those. A, it's uh, a time commitment. So. It's like playing Yakuza. You have to really put the time in. Yeah, I, I, I definitely get that vibe, but I feel like the episodic nature uh, lends itself well to uh, kind of just pick up and play for a little bit. But no, they look like good games. This bit also got me thinking about narrators in Gundam period, which I think you can argue is a series staple. At this point, and RIP, I want to give shout-outs to Gundam Wing's English narrator, Campbell Lane. You've all seen the Jonathan Frakes fact or fiction memes, right? Of course. He was actually also the narrator of the fourth season of Fact or Fiction. I'm trying to get some audio of that because I'm very curious if his voice sounds like it has that gravitas as it does in Gundam (sighs) Wing. But also got me thinking of the narrator of First Gundam, which Turn A, without a doubt, is clearly in conversation with. Just think to the montage of First Gundam images in the opening. And it got me thinking about how that show uses its narrator. Obviously, the narrator exists on a very superficial level to introduce the audience to the Universal Century. And the narrator exudes the obligatory gravitas that the genre entails. But as the show goes on, the show, the writers began to experiment more with the narrator in the show. And by the middle of First Gundam, they were using him more and more, which I think is representative of the show's shift to its war serial roots. Like by the time you get to the middle of the show, all the dissent in the white base crew has been like snuffed out. No one's really rebelling at this time. They are all in the thick of war and they're all pushing forward. There's an episode, episode 25, The Battle of Odessa, and it has a tone and structure similar to that of a history documentary, which wouldn't be possible without the narrator's segments because they're told with a degree of hindsight, which also begs the question, and you have to ask this from time to time when you're dealing with Gundam narrators, how much does the narrator know and how biased is the narrator? But it's a cool bit of layering, and I'm curious if Turn A will use its narrator or narrators, we don't know what other characters will become narrators, uh, in interesting ways. Um, just uh, discussing uh, narrators, and particularly in, in Tomino shows, um, obviously, uh, brain powered uh, was on my mind here. Actually, again, does brain powered um, have a cool narrator? Um, it has. Well, it has a character narrator, uh, which is interesting, um, and and sometimes it results in some funny comments, like if the the male sort of love interest is um, with another girl, she might make some kind of goofy remarks, um, which is. Fun, uh, fun, more enjoyable uh, because Tomino writing that sort of thing, um, typically, um, and he adds his own very distinct spin to it. But um, the character of Hime is sort of the consistent sort of character narrator uh, throughout Brain Powered. Um, and while that doesn't really uh, add to, um, like, like it doesn't come up diegetically, uh, it certainly adds to her characterization a bit more, especially when she might get short shrift in the larger episode and kind of centers her a bit more as the um, uh, secondary protagonist of the show um, in a way that probably wouldn't have been a thing. So quite so clearly uh, if uh, the, she hadn't been the one who was doing the narration. Um, Dunbine also in terms of like uh, creating a narrative out of narration, um, uh, it introduces this as a story as told by the Mi Ferrario in retrospect. And so that sort of, um, like, the, the narrative ult- ultimately does hide, kind of have to conform to that. Um, and that is, does impact, uh, 
Like, you wouldn't expect it, but it's like, oh, wait, that's why that happens to that character at the end of the show, uh, because we need the story as told by the Mi Ferrario. Hmm. So uh, it's worth noting that, like, it may not come up in a huge way, but it might affect um, a particular element uh, moving forward, so it's worth noting. Since you've mentioned Dunbine more than once, I have to ask, Ethan, are you a Garzi's Wing apologist? Somewhere, Rex is listening right now, and he's on the edge of his seat. Uh, I haven't revisited it in a long time. I think it's... I need to watch it in the original Japanese at some point. I think the dub is very funny. Uh, It is extremely fun to watch with friends. Uh, It's uh, goofy uh, and delightful in all the best ways. Yeah, when I was uh, listening slash watching Rex's panel on it that he gave at Anime Lockdown, he dropped a lot of interesting nuggets about the voice actors, and there's some really cool choices uh, who really went some interesting directions in their lives. (laughs) From their elevated vantage point, Laron and Sauche watch as Vicinity and Nakis burn following the Wadham attack. Sauche, with equal parts fear and awe in her voice, wonders what exactly the Turn A's beam rifle, which she calls a tube, is capable of. Meanwhile, Laron fiddles with the controls in the cockpit, seeing if he can find a way to operate the Turn A. It's at this moment that Sauche realizes how high up they are. 20 or 30 meters, she exclaims. Laurent doesn't seem phased by the height or his nakedness. As he calmly tells Sauchet, he disrobed when they were applying the stigmata. As if on cue, the cockpit drops to the ground. Shenanigans ensue. PMC, I know you haven't watched your fair share of The Simpsons, but do you know who Professor Frank is? Yeah, he has like a little patch of like uh, like brownish greenish sort of hair, and he usually like like just kind of like wiggles out. He's like sort of the Simpsons version of, of Beaker. Yeah, I would say you're doing Beaker a discredit by comparing him to Frank, <laughs> but if the comparison is apt, Ethan, you must be a Simpsons fan. You're an animation aficionado. Yeah, I, I, I like a, a Simpson or two. I enjoy that very sort of. Uh... Jerry Lewis, Nutty Professor, uh, meets Beaker. Like, in, in his physical uh, appearance, he's got that tuft of hair and everything. I definitely see where PMC's coming from on aesthetic grounds. If ev- Evaluating The Simpsons is an aesthetic piece rather than a narrative one. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's an episode of The Simpsons where when uh, Frank has a sarcasm detector on a desk and it's, uh, I think Homer is being very sarcastic and the, the machine is overloaded with information. It's just buzzing. It's out of control. And it's like burning out. And, uh, if he had one of those machines, but instead of being a sarcasm detector, it was a, it was a phallic imagery detector. It would be off the charts for this scene. <laughs> Because the phallic imagery, as we talked about earlier, is everywhere. You can't even escape it. Obviously, given where it's located on the turn A, like it's near the groin, the cockpit equals penis comparison is hard to miss. Which is a mecha trope, to be fair. I remember when I posted some of the mechs from some of the orbital frames from the Zone of the Enders anime. That's a penis. That's the meme. That's, that was a penis right out, jutting out of the screen. But it goes just further than the mechatropes. The cockpit, I can't believe I actually wrote this in my notes. The cockpit drops to the ground in a way not entirely dissimilar to a boy's testes dropping. That's when you know you're 
academia brain poison when you write a sentence like that into your notes. But I couldn't think of a better or delicate, a more delicate way to explain it because Laurent's growing up, his testicles are dropping, the Ternay's testicles are dropping. It's all very much on the nose, I think. But also, compounding this imagery, Sachet hits Laurent accidentally in the nuts. And I'm going to be very poetic here in a minute, and then PMC is going to butt in with a very brusque comment. Are you going to do that now, PMC? No, I was just going to say uh, Sarchet really Captain Falcondom. Like, like the way the way that scene is drawn, she's like she's you know she's got her hands back and she's got her one knee forward, and you know, just with the you know I, I forget what the the particular you know element of the the collision box that that would spike the player off the edge of the screen in Smash Brothers is is how how Loran has been damaged. Yeah, I would totally main Sarchet in a turn A fighting game. She's got a lot of spunk. She's like the Chie of uh, Turn A in that she has yeah. like high kicks. Sasha is absolutely a cop. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, so back to the, 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 the penis scene. <laughs> the pattern here suggests that Laurent and Sasha have, I've talked about this before, but they have matured. They changed in some way. They're no longer the carefree children that they were before the coming of age ceremony. I think all this is telegraphed pretty clearly. They're now awakened to the adult world of war. This is a Gundam staple. They've shed their innocence. The scales have fallen from their eyes, so to speak. On another level, though, I don't think this level is present in the first episode of First Gundam, for example. They've been thrust into the next stage of adolescence. Like, this is an initiation of sorts. This is like almost a violent act of puberty. And I think the sexual imagery is both tasteful, I don't think it's fan service, and appropriate given the situation. Yeah, I, I think I, I definitely agree with your appraisal of the situation. I certainly also thought of things like the orbital frames, uh, you know, in terms of other comparisons. I know the some of the screenshots I think uh, Ethan that you posted of brain powered mechs also had some like some orifices in, in certain places. It felt like I don't you know, which, which may be similar. Uh, but I gotta tell you, I couldn't help looking at this and immediately just saying, Ah, the pilot is stored in the balls. Which, you know, I guess that's, <laughs> you know, just uh, sometimes <laughs> this is what I'm being sabotaged by Stephen Hero during a recording of Giant Robot FM. Um, this is what the patrons pay for. Yeah. Um, friend of the show, soon to be future guest, Rex Neighbors Third had a very funny <laughs> Ava post regarding <laughs> Shinji and what does Shinji nut on? And I couldn't help but post it. Um <laughs> when PMC was talking about the pilot is being s- stored in the balls. No, I mean that's that's just that's just how it is. Um, and the fact that it it drops out too, because um, like that's the sort of thing that is in in Zone of the Enders. I think the worst thing they do with the imagery is that when Jehuti transforms from the combat mode to the flight mode, it just sort of like flops up. It just gets very attentive, which is you know very phallic, uh, but. Here, instead, you're getting <laughs> this descent, this drop instead, uh, which is, uh, you can't, can't help but reflect on and does fit thematically. You know, we, we, when the, we had Thal on the previous episode and we were discussing the coming of age ceremony generally, uh, you know, none of that was, 
you know, really particularly lascivious. This is all, it all felt extremely genuine and, and adolescent for, for these characters dealing with all these things in this moment at this sort of intersection of their personal lives with the life of the community and the life of humanity on earth. Yeah. Um, uh, I did just want to confirm PMC's statement that um, uh, the pilot being stored in the balls uh, does originate in uh, brain-powered, as far as Tomino works go, anyways. Um, it's good to put that good. academic marker on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I would love uh, this to is... ask that to Tomino when he comes back to America. That It's going to be like a Gundam century denomination uh, before ball century, after ball century. Yeah. Um, <laughs> abc um it was Arcus who pointed out that one of the ball uh, gunpla kits is sold in pairs <laughs> that the ball sold in the yeah, twin pack yeah the two pack balls <laughs> um uh the second thing i wanted to say is uh thank god that thal discredited <laughs> freud on the last episode because holy shit guys uh no, uh, I think the sequence is overall uh, really good um, and, and very well tastefully handled uh, by Tomino, unlike us um, in this particular instance. Tell me what a to- Tomino would 100% appreciate this conversation. The fact that oh, we're abs- lingering. Uh, yeah, that was absolutely the intent, um, like just to not to t- intentionally make it not lascivious so that people would feel comfortable making this kind of commentary about it. Um, like, I feel like th- there is probably a subtextual meaning, but also I think uh, Tomino knows what's funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Getting your getting your nuts accidentally crushed as you get out of the mobile suit is hilarious. Look, I got to tell you all the time, y- y'all are y'all know the kind of uh, memes that I share on a regular basis uh, in public, and you know that I love a good, you know, some good slapstick. This is another Simpsons joke: man getting hit and groined by football. Yeah, <laughs> timeless. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah. The guy directed like Ditarn. Ditarn is is rife, replete. Ditarn and Zabungle are both replete with um, uh, occasional instances of of groin humor. I swear, at one point, uh, Ditarn gets hit in the nutskies, or no, Ditarn definitely knees a meganoid in the balls at some point. Uh, and that sort of uh, humor is uh, very much something that uh, Tomino would agree with. Um, even if, even in his more serious shows, uh, what is it? The infamous uh, scene of Yazan grabbing a guy by the balls and his introductory episode in Zeta Gundam. Um, oh, Yazan. Humor is stored in the balls. That's right. <laughs> but also, to be fair, this scene does have its fair share of whimsy which I think Kano's playful score emphasizes. Because you have to remember, these two individuals are coming into and exploring their sexuality, and also they're naturally curious about each other, more so Sauchet, less so Laurent to Sauchet, or in Sauchet's direction. Thao was talking about Edenic vibes uh, last episode. I think they're on full display here. I, this comment is directed specifically at Thal, an academic of the highest degree, but this does feel like something from a Philip Sidney or Edmund Spencer poem. If any of you get that reference, any fans of Elizabethan literature that's not Shakespeare, kudos. I will say, though, to qualify that statement, there's no carnal lust here, but there's an innocence like they're tromping through the Garden of Eden that I think is appropriate and uh, tracks well. We just need some fairies flitting through the trees, but I guess Dunbine would provide that, Ethan. Yeah, certainly. Um, in terms of uh, its 
Edenic imagery. You get a little bit of that in Elgheim, just a smidge. Yeah, I can't get too much of the goods. No, um, I think in particular, um, in terms of the, the whimsical quality of it, uh, this was something I noticed um, a little bit back in episode two, um, particularly, uh, is a lot of the architecture, um, while it is is sort of like uh, vaguely like Northeastern European, like um, I don't know that like that general kind of Scandinavian hodgepodge, and I'm sure I'm using the incorrect terminology here. Um, while that does evoke a sort of European quality, it also evokes um, a lot of the architecture of the Aino people of mm. Japan, um, uh, and I think that sort of tracks well with um, the garb of Sochi here, uh, which it very much reminds me of uh, Hilda from Iso Takahata's premier film Horus, Prince of the Sun. Um, which itself trades in, um, it has to use uh, that sort of vague Scandinavian hodgepodge um, as an, a stand-in for the Ainu because of executive meddling saying, hey, the Ainu are subjugated culture and we, we don't want to show them because uh, we don't want to be controversial. Um, and I feel like maybe I'm just making things up, uh, but also, you know, this is after Mononoke kind of a couple of years later hit upon um, uh, sort of a lot of culture... Uh, cultures that were sort of subjugated or swallowed up by the larger um, uh, Japanese diaspora as they spread across the different islands. Um, and particularly 1999 was a watershed year for recognition of uh, the Ainu people's cultural practices by the Japanese government. Um, so I do wonder if this was on Tomino's mind at all um, in this representation, because what we hear earlier um, about uh, their practices sort of fading out of fashion and that sort of thing, um, and how the, this culture may relate um, to uh, the people of Earth being subjugated by the people of the moon, and uh, how um, you know cultures swallow one another. Whether you know uh, you're dealing with extraterrestrials or uh, your neighbors in a different ge- geographical region. I think that pairs very nicely with a lot of the Native American imagery on display, too. Even though that imagery is a little kitschy, um, I think that still translates. Also, I thought this was a fun parallel. I'm going to be pointing out a lot of parallels to First Gundam, particularly the first episode of First Gundam in this episode. Um, but, but Lauren pointing out that the turn A ought to have some kind of manual, I think is a fun little callback to uh, Amaro with his manual. Yeah, um, I also noticed that uh, the manual that Laurent uses it has the same su- the the V the Project V marking on it that um, Amro. It's hard to find a good shot of Amro's manual with the operate uh, the Operation V signature uh, on it. Or the just it's just a V. It's just the letter V um, with some lines next to it. Um, but but I wonder if this is you know playing into this being sort of a, a relic of. Um, uh, times bygone, um, in particular, outside of just the obvious aesthetic reference. Um, certainly, you know, this machine still being part of that lineage of the Gundam, too, uh, speaks to it being just an extension of that original program in some capacity. Sauchet notices marks on Laurent's back. back. <laughs> Laurent wonders if the seat attachments are designed to connect to a pilot suit. Yeah, this is a fun bit because, and this is sort of a, I think, an, an obvious play, which is that the stigmata were descended from some technical means that people mimicked or echoed or copied or you know did something to sort of emulate to 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 recreate these markings. The thing that I'm definitely wondering about too, beyond just that sort of um, that, that plot question, that world building question, is 
does this also characterize Laurent in some way? Because we don't know how those markings are created. Uh, is it is it some kind of fluid? Is it an ink? Is it electrical? Was it heat? You know, what, what caused these markings to appear on his back? We know that Laurent is a professional at sitting on an otherwise uncomfortably hot seat, for example. He is very dutiful. He will not come. I mean, he will flinch at some things, getting kicked in the nuts, but he is pretty good at enduring. And so this could be a case where he has endured something uh, and is not telling us about the experience of it. So cool world building detail, but I think also uh, an interesting thing to ask about uh, Laurent's mind state. Yeah, I completely agree. I was uh, on the same wavelength because the the pilot suit clearly um, it, the the leeches uh, pairing nicely with the black lines you see on it when we see it very briefly in the opening. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to make any guesses. I can presume what they are, but uh, I think that is the more interesting question: is what they would mean to Loran, certainly. On a more abstract level, it makes me think of Jesus Christ, like. Laurent as a Christ-like figure with the stigmata. I wonder if he's going to die for anyone's sins. Is he going to be a savior to a group of people or for a group of people? Um, it begs that question, too. It also it signifies, though, his importance, unintentionally, I think. Hmm. Following the initial attack, the militia soldiers stationed around Nakis scan for reinforcements. When their sonic sensors detect approaching objects the besieged Earthers unleash a barrage of anti-artillery fire at the sky. A descending Wadham, cutting through the clouds, touches down in the city as panicked citizens run through the streets. I couldn't help but think of War of the Worlds. We talked about War of the Worlds in the last episode with Thal. I think the continued comparison is appropriate. In the original War of the Worlds, it's a very iconic scene spotlights illuminate a darkened sky during the opening stages of an alien invasion. You've seen it um, either parodied, parodied in film or television before or just outright adapted in film before. And the similarities, like we talked about with Thal, between the Wadham and Tripods are unmistakable. And also, when you think about a period appropriate considering Turney's interest in late 19th and early 20th century Europe, which leads me to ask, I'm teeing PM, PMC up for the most PMC like answer here what is your experience with war of the worlds and have you read the original novel do you have a favorite adaptation so i have read the original novel it's been it's been a hot minute but i have read it uh, it was i mean i think it was you know it was a good time shout outs to to hell the guy wells and i have also watched the uh the tom cruise adaptation which is probably the most famous film adaptation at this point is that fair to say yeah, I would say so. Okay. Especially, it's a, it's a Spielberg joint. I, right, I it's saw a, big, it a while ago. I, I remember liking it. Yeah, it's it definitely is is made at a particular moment in time. Uh, I can't help but not think about the the Lindsay Ellis comparison of it to Independence Day now. Whenever I think about that film, but obviously that's a whole uh, another branch of, of critique. But yeah, I mean, so I would say, uh, I mean, I think I, I probably if you made me pick, I would just I would go to the original text more. Although I have now, courtesy of Thal and and uh, and Ethan, learned about some adaptations that I'm very interested in checking out. Uh, Thal was talking a little bit in our last recording about a uh, a musical number, but I think we had failed to name the particular adaptation. But Ethan here uh, helped us fill in all the dots. So I'm going to let Ethan take it away. 
I love Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, uh, the original recording narrated by Richard Burton, not the uh, Liam Neeson re-recording, which is is solid. I don't like the, the weird dubstep additions made to this otherwise very charming progressive rock um, album. Uh, but uh, no, uh, that that's that's probably my my favorite personal um, adaptation of uh, The War of the Worlds. Um, but uh, as um, I've mentioned to PMC, uh, because of his love of all things uh, delightfully strange in the worlds of video gaming, uh, is Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds has not one, but two video game adaptations. Uh, a, a vehicle action game um, and a, a more traditional sort of real-time strategy game. I believe the vehicle action game has some sort of real-time strategy element in it, apparently. Yeah, when I was reading up on it, Everything kept referring to it as a combination vehicle action strategy game, which which kind of makes sense. I, my my imagination of it, I, I only the only level I watched is I watched the Thunder Child level because I wanted to see what that looked like, and it looked like it was just like a rail shooter, like you're going around as the Thunder Child, just blowing the shit out of tons of aliens, just like you know, just like in the text. <laughs> and and uh, but I imagine you know a lot of it is probably. Uh, you know, managing retreats and managing placement of units and that sort of thing, uh, e- even in the the PlayStation 1 game. I should just mention for anyone who's trying to find it, my understanding is that the PC RTS was released in both North American and European markets, but that PS1 game is PAL only. So if you're trying to find it, it is PAL only, and make sure you know you, you, you sort yourself appropriately for playing a wonderful PAL game. Everything moves slower. Or sometimes yes. faster if you don't compensate for it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of PAL, uh, another really good adaptation of uh, The War of the Worlds is George Pal's uh, classic one from the 1950s. Uh, George Pal famously being uh, the creator of Puppetoons, which was these delightful little uh, stop-motion animations uh, in the 19, late 1930s and throughout the 1940s. And it eventually became sort of a stop-motion whiz um, and did the classic adaptations of War of the Worlds uh, and The Time Machine um, as well, but both of which I've read. Uh, I've read those, um, and I like like all those texts. Um, of the adaptations, the George Pal one is probably my favorite. Um, I like... I think the first half of Spielberg's is really good, um, but generally, I kind of agree with the common consensus that it, it's let down by its latter half. Yeah, um, it's hard to even, nail the latter half of an alien invasion film. It's like the latter half of a Resident Evil game. It's hard to nail that. Yeah, it, it is difficult because the it. I mean, the whole point of the, the original narrative is that it just does it does just kind of peter out um, at the end. I think uh, Pal had a better idea of handling the climax in that instance, where it's you know it very much builds to a final sort of violent confrontation before the sudden demise there's like a some some odd injection of of christianity into it which is is interesting but um you know i don't i don't mind it quite so much the whole the whole affair is so much more on its face um like it takes the material very seriously but it's lighter it's of a different time too um and so I can forgive it because the effects are so, so nice and pretty. Um, uh, even if they didn't do tripods, I, I like the funky flying saucers with the little uh, uh, dealy bopper uh, lasers. Um, uh, Shout outs to uh, the anime Genesis Climber Maspira for opening on a weird inverted version of War of the Worlds kind of invasion, where it's about uh, Terrans who have uh, colonized Mars returning to conquer uh, Earth from 
uh, an alien race that has conquered Earth, uh, with like in a fun way. Uh, that's that's always been on my mind. I some variation of the Thunder Child always uh, wor- worked its way into my Robotech uh, campaigns um, when I was in high school. <laughs> um, and it was usually something involving the invid in there, so I, I had to get that very, very personal, extremely uh, dorky um, bit uh, mentioned for my old role playing game club, who definitely does not subscribe to your Patreon. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them to after this. I mentioned you guys on a recorded thing on the internet. So I've read the Time Machine, which rules, by the way. I read it last for a climate change science fiction course, which is a really cool course I took back during grad school. I haven't read The War of the Worlds. I've seen the the, um, the Cruise film. I guess I'm most aware of The War of the Worlds via the historical event of Orson Welles broadcasting in the 30s and then everyone in Jersey fleeing in horror, allegedly. But that story has been overblown. God, it just rules so much that Orson Welles did War of the Worlds and then did Unicron. I'm sorry. I just re- got to reflect on that for a brief moment. This is the appropriate podcast to do that on. Orson Welles rules, period. Yeah, no, stuff. absolutely. Yeah, like White Heat or anything, all those. Yeah, uh, go yeah, go off. Yeah, it's great. I recommend anyone interested in his uh, directorial career to check out a documentary called F for Fake. It is wonderful. A very experimental documentary he made in the 70s about authenticity in the art world. But also, it operates on a much greater and more universal level than that. Love that man is the pigeon in the hit anime Enchanted Journey, his second to last vocal appearance. Um, also, I think he did some other movies. Uh, don't know. They don't have talking squirrels. <laughs> you could tell you're on an animation podcast. Yeah. The partygoers in Bostonia Castle flee in horror. Broadcasting to the moon race, Gwyn calls their action for what it is an outright invasion. A moon race representative replies, you were told that in such an event, we would return to Earth. Meanwhile, the city of Nakis prepares to mount a defense, despite the clear technological gap. You know, out of the two of them, I always considered, when I was watching First Gundam, I always considered Yasuhiko to be the history buff. Like, I would always credit any parallels to military history to him, especially after doing that extensive production uh, you know, all that all that research into our origin coverage. But clearly, Tomino's done his bit of reading, too. The balloons the militia launch are modeled, and this text is explicit about this. They're modeled after barrage balloons, which were used during World War II to protect cities from bombardment. Essentially, they turn airspace into minefields, because you would use the balloons as minefields to prevent any, um, basically... Sh- uh, either to directly prevent an attack, like a, a head-on attack, or to prevent a head-on collision into a building, especially from dive bombers. And they're somewhat useful in defending important buildings. British authorities credit the destruction of 231 V-1 missiles to these balloons. Not exactly period-appropriate, I guess. They did use balloons in World War One, but they really fucked up with them because they would have the balloons above the cities, but, the, but they put, like, nets. They'd try to have nets between the balloons um, to prevent an attack, and that apparently didn't work out so well. I imagine yeah, I think also that- just bombing was probably... I, I, I feel like the, the air fleets of World War One were limited compared to World War Two, right? It's, uh, yeah. I mean, we are, we are not military historians, or at least I'm not. Uh, but this is really cool. This is this is one of those things where you're like, oh, they, they took a thing from real life and it makes sense and it was it was real. It has a basis in reality. 
Yeah, I think in particular, uh, this is playing on a, a deep fascination of Tomino's that he likes to kind of cram into all his work, which is the mighty decoy balloon. Um, you know, famously in another Gundam material, you have uh, the the dummy asteroids um, and the uh, the ones that they just made a, a toy of from uh, Char's counterattack, I believe. Um, the the ones that it's like a R E G Z or oh no, uh, with the the generic Fetty suits from mm-hmm. that one. Um, and uh, not to get into like Freudian psychoanalysis again, or not probably not even Freudian, but um, the Tomino's obsession with his dad. Um, it seems interesting that mm, he would true. so uh, deeply hone in on uh, decoy balloons, like balloons used to, to you know distract from attack. When his father sort of, uh, as has previously been discussed, developed uh, balloons specifically for the delivery of bombs. Um, uh, Tomino repping the defensive balloon in opposition to his father, which is. Uh, just just very Tomino. Um, like, it's one of those things where it sounds like a stretch, and then you watch any of Tomino's work, and like, I don't know, he could do that. <laughs> he could be that kind of, like, petty and weird about it. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. That's a good pull. I forgot about that. Yeah, all the stuff his dad was cooking up in WW2. Taking a swig from a flask, Lieutenant Poe IG, one of the Wadham pilots, bemoans her situation. She exclaims, quote, this isn't what we were told at all. They said Earthers were soft and wouldn't resist. But here they are, shooting at us from toy airplanes. End quote. As if on cue, another fighter plane squadron, one on an intercept course with the Wadhams, takes off. Even though she's reluctant to kill Earthers, she ultimately pulls the trigger, unleashing a massive energy beam from the head of the Wadham that cuts straight through Nakis, devastating the city. I might have been doing some editorializing there when I said she's reluctant to kill Earthers, uh, as I'll talk about in a minute. We don't really have enough info. I'm leaning in one direction, but I wanted to give her the benefit at the doubt, even though she is at the vanguard of an invading force. Um, Before I get there, though, and I know this observation is often trotted out regarding Tomino, but I think it bears mentioning. Poe expresses her discontent with how she's been treated by her superiors. It seems she was kind of sold a bill of goods. I'm assuming there's moon race generals and politicians, maybe even Queen Deanna herself. It seems like they justified the invasion with false information, at least to some degree. I feel this is classic Tomino. This is Tomino 101. He loves to spotlight rank-and-file soldiers to show how they are misled and manipulated by people in power. First Gundam, for example, frequently pairs the white base crew with their either against Xeon counterparts to show they have more in common than they think, or literally pairing them in the same room with one another um, to show how they share some things in common, and usually to show, uh, to criticize the institutions that perpetuate these conflicts or even started these conflicts in the first place. Um, There's famously episode 14 of First Gundam, Time Be Still, which is the only episode wholly credited to Tomino as a writer. It's all about this. Um, There's a great exchange between Kozun and Bright in episode 16 um, when he's in the brig, when he's in prison, to this effect. Bright says, quote, however, you won't be fed well. After all, we are barely keeping ourselves fed. And then Kozun says, same with us. The higher-ups don't give a second thought to us guys on the front lines. Now, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but I do get the sense from Poe that um, 
she's not happy with how she's been treated. And uh, it doesn't seem like her superiors were completely honest with her when they debriefed her about what this invasion would be like. Keep in mind, though, I'm not giving Poe a pass. I really don't know where Poe's trajectory will take us in turn A. So this is always a iffy ground I'm standing on. Though I will say at the start, I try not to get into a binary mode when I'm critiquing a work to get into a mode of casting moral judgments on fictional characters. I do that, of course, but if my criticism rests solely on those moral judgments, I feel like it makes my criticism too reductive because it flattens the complexity of a world. And it tends to create a barrier between a critic and the work they're studying because if you throw a character into the dustbin and uh, don't want to interact or interrogate them at all, then you're really limiting your criticism. But what we know about Poe so far, she's the first wave of an invasion force. Like, she's probably fucked ideologically. Like, she probably harbors some unpleasant views. But based on what little we've seen of her, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think this is the case, but I can't rule it out. She might be bothered by the Earther's resistance on moral grounds. Like, maybe she doesn't want to kill them. Maybe she doesn't want to pull the trigger. Maybe she doesn't want to exert the effort to dispense with people she sees as inferior. Now, I, sh- I, I, I recognize that she does fire an energy beam that cuts right through the city, presumably killing hundreds, if not thousands, of innocents without too much hesitation. So I'm kind of going to rule out that first bit. Also, though, if you really read her, like, read her dialogue, she does say that she was told that the Earthers were soft. Now, maybe that's her spin on what she was told, but maybe it also implies that she didn't have those prejudicial, prejudicial views beforehand. I think more likely she was told not to use force, which put her in a tough position, hence her frustration. I'll say this, though. Whatever's the case, there's something slapstick about Poe that I find endearing, whether it's the delivery of her voice or just uh, her stage presence. I'm curious how this character is going to exist in the show going forward. Yeah, I I think I'm definitely similarly curious. Uh, You know, I... I (laughs) I, I'm kind of reluctant to jump on the idea that she is reluctant. I, I think, or or at least, what would be causing her to to hold off on firing? You know, what what is the sort of uh, the, the game that she's playing? Because I don't think it is uh, a desire n- not to kill. I mean, it, we are shown at no point is she in any danger from the things that the Earthers are deploying, and she still shoots them anyway. You know what? It, what is the sort of the the point of that? One thing I was thinking about is that it, you know it is often the case when it comes to the rhetoric of empire that the the enemy of empire is often simultaneously very fragile but also overwhelmingly strong. Um, this is like typified by like Top Gun, where all of the enemy nations have like terrible airplanes, but also they're going to kill your hero a hundred percent with like some awful backwater MIG or something. Um, and so this is the same kind of thing here where it feels like Poe was told, I, I think, I don't think she was told, you know, that the earthers are soft as like almost like a, like a tactical appraisal as much as it's like, yeah, they're your enemy. They're soft. You know, they don't deserve the earth. They don't. Or you- maybe. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, maybe the, uh, the, her superiors were, f- uh, feeding into her prejudices to, in order to get her to, uh, like, I don't know, really push forward in this invasion. I don't know how instrumental Poe is to this invasion, right. but there aren't too many Wadhams out there, so she's exactly. one of the few on the field. Yeah, so it definitely, it, it, it 
you wonder what is her situation within this. Uh, I do have like one out for her that I think would make her a more sympathetic character, but I'm going to bring that up for a later scene of hers. Yeah. Um, getting into this, I feel like um, I, I do agree that there's a lot of gene uh, in uh, Poe, but also um, particularly going back to Denbine again, um, Garalaya Nyamhi, uh, which is extremely Tomino-ass name. Um, <laughs> don't even get me started on uh, Gerald Kuchibi. Um, uh, but uh, Garalia is sort of uh, in that same vein. She's a native of Byston Well, so she believes in sort of um, an innate superiority uh, to people from Upper Earth. Uh, such as it were um, and she kind of is played um, in much the same way as Todd Guinness is in that show and Todd Guinness is uh, proto Jared basically um, Jared before Jared uh, Jared from Boston um, Boston's favorite Jared but um, no I, I'm getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of Gralia <laughs> Nyamhi vibes uh, from this character says a uh, guy who's only seen or battle or Dunbine um, uh, in particular, just that sort of general sense of superiority and also the kind of losing their cool very easily. Um, I feel like uh, right now I'm going with they're uh, going to get clowned on, uh, and if they don't die, uh, then they're going like immediately, and they're probably going to get clowned on a few more times and then die um, after just completely losing it. Um, this this basically just assumes that this character follows an identical arc to Gorelia and Yami. <laughs> Uh, which uh, maybe won't happen. It would be nice to see this character sort of evolve into their own and, and become... Uh, and I'm interested in seeing how that uh, moves forward, especially um, now that we have a new, a newly reformed Tomino. Uh, Tomino uh, woman-liker, uh, not Tomin, Tomino woman uh, complicated feelings about her. I've the Tomino woman-liker has logged on. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely seen... Uh, so Okay, so I saw a Twitter post about this character recently, and it said that, yes, Tomino is more equitable... That a woman could be Jared too. <laughs> yeah. So that may that may in fact reveal the future arc for this. We'll see. All right. Then I take away. So I take back some of my earlier point. <laughs> you haven't seen Zeta Gundam, Stephen. What do you know of Jared? I do know a few things about okay. Jared. I've, I watched a bit of Zeta Gundam. Okay. Okay. I'm not completely in the dark. Double Zeta, yes, though. I have not seen any of Double Zeta. Kiel's mother finally locates her daughter, who determinedly walks off announcing she needs to be at Gwyn's side. She only makes it a few steps before a Wadham walks in front of the castle's windows, the sight of which causes the Heim matriarch to faint. I think this scene does a lot of uh, decent work, I guess, differentiating between the different generations uh, and speaks to the generational differences that exist between Kiel and her mother. And also, I think it speaks to Kiel's strength as a character. We don't know too much about Kiel's mom, um, but with what little we do know about her, she definitely comes across as an archetypal Victorian woman in the literary sense. She's, we know she's very modest. She's refined. She's de- definitely devoted to her family, her husband and her children. And she even faints. Like, someone get the smelling salts. This is like a Jane Austen novel. Her mother is only framed in relation to her children or husband, never herself. In fact, and I had to look this up, she doesn't even have a canonical name. Correct me if I'm wrong, dear listener, but I couldn't actually find a name for her. She's only referred to as Mistress Heim. Kiel, on the other hand, wants a different life, and that's been stressed in the show thus far. She doesn't want to be reared in domestic etiquette or to go to school to gain trivial knowledge 
to use at dinner parties. She wants to enter the workforce. She wants to apply herself creatively on her own merits. She's definitely not afraid of confrontation. In fact, she usually seeks it out. She definitely becomes a little bit more quote-unquote traditional around Gwyn. Um, she's serving all of Gwyn soldiers' refreshments. Um, but I think given the, uh, the circumstances of the situation, um, I'll let that pass, so to speak. She usually wants to break boundaries. Like this juxtaposition of Kiel standing over her unconscious mother, I feel emphasizes these generational differences. And to her credit, and Thal pointed this out last episode, her mom doesn't stand in the way of her children's ambitions. You know, same with Dylan, Dylan Heim, who RIP brother, who's always in peak dad mode in that he gives his daughters whatever they ask. I think this could be indicative of class. Like the Heim family isn't nobility. They're nouveau riche, newly rich. And, you know, they, it seems they try to play the part of high society. They drive nice cars, more traditional cars, not sports cars. That's what Gwyn's driving, but they do have nice cars. They have a chauffeur, a very nice man. Oh, they have two chauffeurs, actually. Uh, one who, oh, what's his name? PMC, do you remember? Start- no, I don't remember. The, yeah. the guy who helps so she, uh, so she go to the, the flat at the end of the first episode, right? Yeah, I hope yeah. Ron didn't put him out of a job. That's why they got to unionize. <laughs> they wear fancy clothes, the Heim family. They also have an apartment in the city. But it seems they don't carry with them the values of an aristocratic tradition dating back centuries. Like, for example, I'm not sure if Lord Gwyn Reinford, you know, first of his name, uh, if he chose to shirk family obligations, let's say if Gwyn wanted to become a starving artist, let's say. Let's, let's, see if, let's say if he wanted to become a mecha podcaster... Would he be granted the same freedoms by his family? I think not. Yeah, and I think um, in particular, calling back to other Tomino works, uh, because I did the required reading and I'm going to show it off. <laughs> but I, I do like his this habit he has of um, uh, creating different uh, varying levels of wealth and sort of introducing them and juxtap- uh, juxtaposing them. Uh, the series uh, Zabungle um, does that a little bit, which it's, you know, you wouldn't think so. It's normally the kind of funny comedy haha show. Uh, but um, there's a character in that uh, that is sort of in, in the same area of uh, like Sochier a little bit, um, Elchi Cargo, um, who uh, the Cargo family is very wealthy um, in terms of people on like the barren surface world, like they have their own land ship and everything, but uh, compared to the hyper wealthy innocent, uh, they're considered an outsider despite having that um a same, the same, a similar at least level of like value uh, to their name, um, and so um, Elchi kind of aspires to that, um, and is a bit of a brat. I guess that's also what uh, puts me in mind of Sochie. Um But she also wants to be a fighter, like she wants to do her own thing and move on. Um, also, uh, Elchi's father uh, meets a similar fate, and his name is Carrying Cargo, uh, which is an extremely good. good name. Um, but no, I just like seeing that in other works, particularly um, when uh, Tomine was playing in a science fiction setting that isn't quite so rooted in um, traditional uh, Gundam hierarchies of space noids and earth noids. I got to say that is refreshing, too, because I've just been immersed in that dichotomy for so long. Uh, even though it's various shades of that same dichotomy, it's still fun not to have that rubbed in my face all the time. Hmm. I got to shout out Andy here, Engine Veer on Twitter. He always points out, online uh anytime and this is all in caps here robots through windows 
Um, the reason why it does this is because it rules. It's a great framing device. Uh, it really does put the sheer size of these hulking mechanical behemoths into perspective. I think scale really does matter. And, you know, I was kind of poking fun of or poking fun at Kiel's mother before, but it is it would be frightening the first time you see one of these Wadhams, you know, walking in front of the window. Um, I could understand a bit why she fainted. I really do appreciate all of how these shots of invasion are framed. Uh, I, I mean, I, I want to connect both this with the windows as well as the shot on the street where the, you know, the, the roads buckle and the tram, the tram is knocked aside and the power lines snap. Uh, and I, I, there's like some really neat uses of, um, I mean, as, as a non scholar who's someone who watches animation, it just feels like the way things focus on the background and then the interruption by the, uh, the mechanical apparatus, is uh is very good it's very satisfying it really i think it provides a visual means by which a uh the, the sense of being jarred uh, of, you know being caused the fate of being startled uh is you know transmitted to the viewer yeah i think uh particularly the the use of camera effects in general has always been sort of a strength of uh of tomino um who uh calling back to something uh fees mentioned sort of in the the afterward of uh your guys's uh, coverage with Thal is uh, the credited storyboard artist on these three episodes, uh, these three first episodes, and I believe like a good half of the series at least, not counting whatever revisions he did, is uh, Minoru Yokitani, uh, who is uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino. Uh, that's sort of his aliases. Um, and uh, you can usually tell it's a Tomino board if it uh, really emphasizes size in that way. He's very good at that. Like, you know, he famously did boards for early episodes of Gundam when like the Gundam literally, Gundam Rising in the literal sense when it's getting up. Um, really conveys a sense of uh, scale and th that sort of focus trick is an old hand thing and that would be something that would be denoted like the cinematography effects uh, are denoted in uh, storyboard notes as much as anything for anyone who may might not realize it's not just the framing of a shot but also um, if he wants to use a particular style of lens or any sort of effects work um, obviously the person photographing the cells might have some freedom on that subject but usually a lot of this is governed within the storyboards uh this is also how tomino got away with editing a lot of people's scripts is because he would do the storyboards for the episodes mm. and he could just change things as he wanted classic i like the scene a lot too it reminded me a bit of the earthquake scene in the wind rises um it's probably an animation like high watermark for studio ghibli i guess for miyazaki period um, if you haven't seen that film, it dramatizes an historical event, the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake, um, which ripped apart the city. And it's uh, it's horrifying to watch play out, but it's also spectacular in the animation sense. And I get shades of that here. The scene isn't quite as long or as magnificent isn't the word to use, but you know what I mean. Um just as powerful as is in The Wind Rises, but watching the um, various Wadham attacks on Nakis is equally as breathtakingly destructive. So shout-outs to the animators, and shout-outs to my dear friend Tomino. <laughs> Back in the mountains, Laurent makes a discovery. Underneath the seat, he finds an electronic tablet that seems to function as an instruction manual. Sauchet wonders if it has thin paper or film inside it before directing his attention to the fires that are breaking out in Nakus. Folks, we got some interface technology. My favorite. This is really fun, especially thinking about uh, this uh, in terms of the production of when this was being made 
in uh, you know in in uh, or you know was released in 1999. Uh, you know, because I, I think in some ways, the if someone sees this device and the way that it has a screen portion and the way that it has a a sort of specific touch sensitive portion, that they would look at that and they'd be like, oh well, this is this is an iPad. iPad wasn't released commercially until 2001, so that is not a proto click wheel. At least I don't think it is. I mean, there might. I know there were earlier MP3 players. I do not think they had the same kind of touch-sensitive input uh, that that has. Um, so, very, very interesting device. Um, obviously, it's fun in terms of the plot because Laurent knows more than he's letting on. Uh, so, I mean, that's very fun. But I, I just think that this is a um, this is like the moment in time. I think when you're seeing a lot of science fiction start to recognize that actually the future is not an enormous tube TVs. <laughs> Uh, that actually, I wish. Yeah. That, well, I mean, uh, maybe. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I left behind the TV. TV. I don't miss them. I do not miss carrying those things around. Good grief. <laughs> I know it's sitting right next. I don't carry it around. It just sits there. I'll say this: watching G Savior on a DVD player on an HD CRT, the colors. It's just different. I'm gonna mm-hmm. be that guy here. It's just different. That's well. That's fair. But I mean, I will say this too: if you look at other works um, of the era, and I, for my for my uh, you know co-host here, I pasted in an image of a Star Trek Deep Space Nine tablet. This is one of the few times in the show where they show you the screen side of a tablet. Normally, you only see the back side of a tablet, but this is the one time for a gag, for a comic gag, where where Bashir turns the Jedzia Dax, where he's saying something else, but he's really trying to get her to 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 go away, and it just says "go away" on the screen. Anyway, on the on the tablet, you can see that there's some buttons at the bottom, but there's a screen at top. Uh, not you know, not dissimilar to sort of again what we see in this um, tablet. The one thing I will say about this tablet is that it is a clamshell tablet, uh, which is also you know interesting for other reasons. That's not too uncommon to think about. Laptops were certainly quite prolific at that time, uh, so that's nothing too unusual. The clamshell format, uh, but definitely a clamshell format with a sort of um, you know, a, a tablet structure uh, is fun. It's, I think it's a, it's a cute little moment in time, uh, both, you know, for, for what they're doing in the plot, but also for what where interfaces were at that time. Yeah, I think um, it, it has kind of like a, like a classic PDA quality to it almost. Um, uh, would it, this is a weird pull, uh, but the way Lauren uses the, like, thumb, uh, the, there's like a dedicated almost mouse space for it, you don't really uh, seem to use a traditional touchpad. Um, it reminds me there's an old uh, Sega Genesis third-party controller called the 360 pad that just it just has no physical input. It's terrible. It's bad. Mm-hmm. You have no like response to it. Um, but it very much put me in mind of that something with like sensors underneath it. Um, still, just interesting seeing how uh, you would navigate using an interface um, on like something that's very uh, clean and slick but without a traditional sort of touch interface or uh, with a stylus pen or that sort of thing. Instead, you have this thing that's like functionally a directional pad, but without the um, maybe cosmetic uh, obstruction of having them be uh, designated arrows and that sort of thing. I'm looking at this Genesis controller now. This thing looks cursed. Ethan, did you play (laughs) Sonic with this? Absolutely not. Uh, I don't (laughs) think anybody could play anything with that guy. Uh, Awful. It just looks terrible. I wouldn't. I would want to try it, but I wouldn't want to try it for long. <laughs> Cut to Nakis, where the Wadham is wreaking havoc. Missiles rain down on city streets and soldiers alike. From his command center, 
Gwyn issues her orders in an attempt to stabilize the situation. He thanks Kiel, who has been looking after his men, for her help. He reveals that he's been negotiating with the Moon Race for the past two years. He's optimistic that they'll listen to reason, if not the generals, then Deanna Suriel, at least. You know, I, we can't talk too much about it because we haven't really met her yet, but everyone seems to have a lot of faith in this character. She must be very charismatic. I, I will meet her at some point, I'm sure. I really like uh, Diana so far, just uh, conceptually, just because she embodies, um, well, well, two sort of older Tomino characters. Not to make everything like a culmination of things. This is more, when I say something reminds me of something, you could just take it as that. Like, Tomino might not have intended it. It's just like, this reminds me of a cool thing, and I think it's cool. That's called podcast, um, Ethan. Lean into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just don't want to make, like... I think some people kind of try to make definitive statements about um, comparisons to media, and I want to make that clear. Uh, do not trust me. I am not a trustworthy sort. Uh, very much um, talking about self-help here, but uh, in particular, uh, Koros, Korosu from uh, Daitarn III, uh, the enigmatic queen of the mechanoids, uh, who is similarly sort of, you know, a willowy extraterrestrial figure with uh, blue skin, but also like a different color blue, different shade of blue lipstick um, and deep blue eyes. Who's a very enigmatic figure um, in that show um, and who we don't learn a whole lot about, um, but she became sort of a fan favorite. Um, I mean, I'm getting shades of her in this. I feel like obviously she's going to be a bit less, you know, straightforwardly villainous as a character from a 1970s super robot show would be. Um, but um, I, I'm interested in a Tomino villain with hidden depths, uh, particularly a woman, uh, figure as opposed to you know um, a more straightforwardly antagonistic figure like a Haman Karn um, uh, and the character uh, Old Napolsadel from uh, Heavy Metal Elgheim. Heavy Metal Elgheim is probably the most Tomino names Tomino names get uh, I like not even you don't even get anything like quite as absurd as uh, as four vaginas um, <laughs> but uh, Old Napolsadel is uh, similarly like I, I like when Tomino does stuff with queens uh, in, in figures because he always makes them like sufficiently mysterious and cool um, and I'm really interested in how uh, Diana uh, stacks up because I, I feel like again because we're we're at ascended Tomino here um, you know post brain powered his brain is at running at full power um at this moment in time um so i want to see if he's uh going to sort of play into those uh older characters with this more antagonistic figure or how he's going to subvert himself or maybe provide a similar sort of figure um well just with minor variation um it's always interesting seeing what he does with these um archetypes that he likes to return to and adjust accordingly he's operating at full power because now that he shaves his head or is just naturally bald now it's like a solar panel it just absorbs everything from the sun powering him fun fact about tomino i'm gonna make a definitive statement there you could fact check me all you want tomino fans online uh it's just like daitarn 3 if you peer if you're the power if you don't fear the power of the sun then come at me uh as he as he poses with his fan up and uh <laughs> bald head but binding his enemies uh with his reflection uh Titan 3 so good. <laughs> music whips. I think PMC edited some of that music into our first Gundam history episode. Sid and his assistant locate the Turne just as Laron, finding success with the controls, manages to reattach the cockpit. Sid calls up, asking, who's operating that machine that came out of the white doll statue? Laron gives Sid his name and tells him that it moved by itself. 
Sid's assistant, who we later learn is named Joseph? Question mark. I think yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Joseph and the Technicolor Sid's assistant. Joseph <laughs> asks, "Is this one of the machines written about in the secret dark history?" Before Sid implores Laurent to hide the mechanical doll in the Heim Mine Valley. Laurent finally manages to make the turn a walk. It lumbers in the direction of the mine before tripping and falling due to a collapsing tunnel. Last episode, I talked about post-apocalyptic fiction, and this is one of my favorite tropes. So I do have some knowledge of Turnay, and I'm not making a definitive statement here. Some people are going to roll their eyes at this, but I have heard that the correct century is nominally, at least, connected to the UC timeline. Like, I know that going in. This isn't the best example to use, but kind of how like Final Fantasy VII and X technically take place in the same universe. I'm not upholding that example as the trope working, um, but it's the first thing that came to mind because they're very tenuously linked. But if you use this technique right, it can add a really fun metatextual layer. Uh, for, as a good example, I'll use the Mega Man Legends series, which canonically takes place in the far future well after... Mega Man X and the original Mega Man series, and it plays with that imagery. It's it's fun like that. And as Turney's creator, who's re- purposefully reflecting on Gundam's history, Tomino is a lot like Sid. He's an archaeologist slash anthropologist. He uncovers, he's literally uncovering and studying the symbols and motifs that are a part of Gundam. And he also, like an archaeologist, there's a degree of hindsight there. He's interpreting these symbols which means he can use them in fun and unique ways. He can expand them, he could subvert them, he could change their meanings entirely. Like the turn A itself, the the dope-ass aesthetic that is the turn A Gundam, is an artifact. And it has been since since it's been uncovered, I guess since it's been around, it's been worshipped as a god. And like, you know, think about the Gundam in pop culture. Fans have worshipped it at the capital of the altar of capitalism for decades at this point. Turn A premiered almost two decades to the date of first Gundam's premiere. So I'm curious if Tomino is going to do anything fun with that parallel. I'm sure he is. He's this whole project is metatextual in origin. So those are all excellent substantive comments. I'm going to supplement them by mentioning, sort of following up on my previous statements, which is that. Every single moment, one of the things that makes this trope fun is that every single moment of contact with that, that ancient civilization is a sort of, um, there, there's like opportunity for, for, for tension there or friction is maybe a better word. And so the, I'm excited, of course, to learn about what is in the dark history. Naturally, everyone wants to know what's in the dark history now. Dark history is talking about Gundam. I love Gundam. But what I'm even more excited to know is in what medium is the dark history tangibly fixed? I'm even more interested to know that because I bet you it's going to be something silly. Maybe it's going to be another tablet. Could be something even wilder. I don't know. Right now, here's my here's my here's my take. Bait the the OP where they show you flashes of other mm-hmm. Gundam shows. Maybe the dark history is like some wacky projector, and those are all alluding to the dark history. Those little mm. things in the OP. I don't know. It would be fun though. It would it would it would tie in the imagery of the OP in a weird way, uh, or in a fun way, actually, really. Um, so uh, yeah, again, 
I'm not. I'm not sure uh, what exactly. Well, well, I don't know if we'll even see the dark history literally in this show, but I'm very curious now. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back from the actual uh, waxing on what the dark history could be uh, to uh, wax on what the the dark history used to be, and like a like a metatextual kind of way, uh, translation sort of thing about why you shouldn't maybe adhere too closely to the Japanese text or like consider what you're what you're going to put. Uh, for a while, it wasn't super uncommon, like in the days of fan subs and that sort of thing, uh, for it to be translated as the Black History. Uh, this is an awkward translation, uh, so be mindful of things like that. I've I've seen it um, since everyone has come to their senses and is just like just call it the dark history. Um, but um, no, I think the larger point about um, this being related, and particularly about this being a metatextual sort of meditation, because obviously this isn't the first time Tomino has done that. Because uh, Zeta Gundam premiered, um, oh golly, uh, seven years, nineteen eighty six after, um, if not 1985, so seven or six, either or, um, after the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, and it's interesting seeing how he's grown, particularly after, you know, uh, Turn A Gundam being his second project uh, after a uh, five-year hiatus, as opposed to, um, you know, his, his nth pro- uh, project um, over the course of a decade, you know, at, at this point. By the time Zeta Gundam would come out, he'd been directing basically a series a year, not counting all the films um, for each of these things. Like Zabungle had a film, Elgheim had uh, several OVAs and that sort of thing on top of the actual series development. Um, so we're seeing um, Tomino able to reflect after having some time to actually let things sit with him um, when he's not just constantly working himself. Not to mention uh, to he writes win. like 30 books in that time frame. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not counting every all the Bison Well stuff, and the there are apparently Daitarn three novels about a Banjo Haran with no Daitarn in it. It's just about uh, Super Spy Banjo. Um, uh-huh. um, like the the man's just busy do writing and doing stuff constantly, um, and like that. There's a relatively calm period in his career um, there, uh, and I'm. I'm just curious at the the juxtaposition between like um, how maybe less embittered. Uh, he is moving into a project like Turn A because you can already kind of see it in Brain Powered. Mm. Also, more pubescent shenanigans occur between Laron and Sauchet. Uh, Laron asks her not to sit on his leg when he's controlling the Turn A. She playfully refuses and leans back into him, which causes him to prematurely press the accelerator, throwing it off balance. This is fun, but I do feel like there's like a missed opportunity here for some sort of like a uh, child operates machine for adults sort of shenanigan or like one of them would have to operate the pedals with their hands and then the other would have to like use the steering wheel or something. I don't know. I, I just, I just the thought I had when it came. I, this is bit is very good though. Like clearly this is still funny though. It is still working. That reminds me of Beck and his goons piloting the back yes. victory deluxe in the big O. Yeah, I think there could be something fun like that, like the the interface when you're not wearing a pilot suit or something. It doesn't communicate properly, so one of them has to like just stand like stand on their hands to use the pedals with their hands, so they're like doing this weird awkward position. I feel like they've already been playing with that, so yeah. just bring it to the nth degree. Um, what what we have here is fun, though. Absolutely. Sauchet, annoyed, announces that she's going home. Laurent escorts her while Sid and his assistant, Joseph, secure the turn A for Gwyn. 
All right, let me just say, I think Laurent is doing this because he's looking out for Sauchet. He's a good guy. He cares about her well-being, and he wants to make sure he gets or she gets home unharmed. On a more, on a different level, it does show how inescapable class distinctions are in this world or in our world. Think about it for a minute. Laurent just piloted a goddamn Gundam, which to the villagers at least, it's it's a, it's a walking god. He had become empowered beyond imagination for a short period of time. He slips into the role of dutiful chauffeur without hesitation the moment Sauchet wants to go home. And as a lot of these characters are beginning to realize, or as some of these characters already know, it's difficult to escape the origins of your birth. Like, I don't think this is an explicit reference, but these realities echo Char's final words to Garma. The very famous line, blame this on the misfortune of your birth. I think it's a kind of a refrain of this episode that, and this comes up, kind of here but also it comes up later with keith that people keep saying to to Laurent, like hey you've got a lot of power now you know what are you gonna do about that and he keeps falling back into this thing of duty i we i talked about this previously with regards to the characterization of Laurent, and clearly you know it's still still a relevant and pressing theme for him um but man i really wish someone would like would lean over to him and be like hey Laurent, direct action gets the goods you know or, or something to that effect yeah, I think um, in particular the the sort of stratification. It's kind of hard to parse exactly where Laurent's coming from, too, because it's a combination of um, him being integrated into you know larger Earth society, um, but also you know him coming from a society that clearly you know worships Diana, uh, like like in more than like in the classical way one would worship like um, a king or queen, like as as being descended from divinity. Like, and it seems like the other uh, moon race that we see treat her with. Um, similar reverence maybe not quite so extreme there's definitely some of uh, Laurent's own naivete uh dipping into his own perception of his his queen um but i still think it's interesting a juxtaposition like in just how much um th- that is informed by uh, his own upbringing as uh, as moon race as well as again just the naivete of a to- of a, a sense of child um, and it's going to be interesting to see that um, as we're, you know, privy more to Moonray society and how they operate. Um, and it gives us a better handle on uh, what is like so sort of a general attribute of their society and what is distinct to Laron. I'm really curious about Deanna at this point. I know the fandom really loves her and I might really love her too. But where I am now, I'm holding her at a distance just because... She is at the head of an invading force who plans to colonize a large swath of land that's ostensibly not theirs. So I was giving Poe the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that was a mistake on my part, too. But I'm still holding Deanna at arm's length, even though I'm sure I'll probably like her. It seems that Laron definitely respects her for whatever reason that might be. Um, He is one to be subservient, though, to his betters, to his perceived betters. So maybe it's a bit of that. Yeah, and it's it's kind of hard to tell with Gundam fans because like Gundam fans, well, hey, they like Char. Uh, that's that's already a red flag right there. The uh, the red comic, more like the the red flag. Uh, Aha! Uh, but uh, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe she will be a Haman Karn figure. Uh, maybe there will be hidden depths there again. Um, th- th- she's very interesting, and I'm glad that I think Elgheim kind of uh, shot its shot a little early. Into like Old Naposadel is probably a bad person. Um, and there there is a twist there, but like I don't know. It's it's not a great twist. I'm not going to lie. Um, uh, it's 
all right. Um, but I feel like there's going to be a far more like satisfying revelation about her character, and I I don't think she's going to be quite so um, on the nose, pointedly um, antagonistic, or have quite a uh, broken worldview as you know characters like Haman Karn and that sort of thing. Per Gwyn's orders, the militiamen fall back. Meanwhile, the moon race commander, from the vantage point of his dropship, attempts to pinpoint the origins of that energy blast that was used against them. They conclude that it was fired near the landing zone of one of the flats two years ago. Gwyn, standing on a balcony with his arms outstretched, speechifies at the enemy ships descending through the atmosphere above the city. He announces that, quote, we've uncovered one of the mechanical dolls spoken of in the dark history, end quote. He tells Kiel that, with Sid's help, they'll unearth vast numbers of space, space machines that can be used as weapons. He also tells her that Laurent and Sauché are controlling one of them. Rhetorically, he asks, wonderful news, wouldn't you say? So uh, credit to PMC here. On the first Moonrace Wireless episode, you pointed out that Luron's invocation to his, you know, his buddies back on the moon, like, everybody, come back soon. You felt that rang pretty ironic, which I think is true. Like, we're now seeing just how joyous that reunion is. I think the same can be said of Gwyn here when he tells Kiel about how wonderful this news is. To be fair, like I understand the enemy is at their doorstep, and they're about to be occupied at bayonet points, so to speak. And to be honest, I think Gwyn does a pretty good job marshalling the defenses in what limited like power he wields. Like, a wonder weapon would be really great at this time. The word choice here is a little... raises some red flags. Wonderful news, wouldn't you say? Immediately, that made me pause and evaluate his motives. And I think his... A Japanese voice actor plays this up a bit. There's a casualness, again, almost eagerness to his words that's very dissonant with the gravity of the situation. They might speak, or his words might speak to some grander ambitions. Like, he, we know he has th- capital T thoughts about war. Like, what lengths will he go to acquire these weapons? They're scattered, after all, all over the earth. How's he going to get them? Who's he going to trample on? And also, it begs the question... And every mecha show needs to ask this question. What will he do with these weapons once the war is over? Put him on a ship into the sun. Gundam Wing answered this question. No, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this is like really apt, though, to bring up Loran's uh, invocation to the moon because not only is it the, the, uh, the irony responsive in terms of his rhetoric uh, when talking to... Uh, when talking to Kiel, but also you know, he's doing the same gesture as well just beforehand. He is he is looking up uh, more directly. The the distance between Gwyn and the Lunar Invaders is a shorter distance than it is two years prior when Loran is shouting up at the moon. But nevertheless, it is sort of also the opposite where he's saying, "Don't come down here. We have a Gundam." You know, which the other thing I wanted to bring up here is that it is interesting that this is, um. Sort of the opposite of what Sid wanted to do. Sid was like, "Don't, don't tell him. Don't tell him. Ixnay. You know, don't do it. Don't let him know." And Gwyn is like, "No, we're flashing the gun immediately." And you understand, like, you know, strategically why Gwyn is doing that. But of course, that then plays into 
the eagerness, which I can only assume is what the dark history ultimately warns against uh, as far as uh, Sid's interpretation of it goes. So a lot of fun, fun work going on here. So many questions about Gwyn. He does cut a very heroic figure, though. Like, he's very, he's looking very dapper, looking very, uh, I don't want to say presidential. I really don't want to use that word. But, you know, that's in, it's, it's almost midnight. That's the only word that's coming to mind. <laughs> don't read, politically, don't read in that statement. But you know what I'm saying. He feels very authoritative. And he, like, grabs the wireless and he's, um, you know, making his declarations into the mic. Just like Trey's. Just like Trey's Kushinata. He does have a little bit of that energy, but I don't know. He's a bit more approachable. God, I, I don't think I he would Trace, straightforwardly. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he would straightforwardly say some of the shit Trace drops. But um, yeah, Gwyn is not going like to get on the mic and declare, "I want to be the losers." You know, he's not going to do that. Um, I I do wonder because I think like they're building to this, and he sees a little bit of like the the material destruction from his vantage point. I'm wondering if it's going to be a case of. Uh, a, there's going to, they're not going to find any more Gundams if um, if it's just going to be the white doll and that's going to kind of uh, characterize his own approach, like like lead to some sort of nihilism as a result. If they might try to subvert this sort of archetype, um, or if maybe like viewing the you know actual horror like up close of uh, the Moon Races attack. Um, I, I guess because partially I going back to War of the Worlds and I think of like the figure of the artilleryman. Uh, who talks to the narrator and is coming up with all these wild ideas about how we're going to fight the Martians and win, and he's just kind of blowing smoke. Um, he doesn't really have any intention of doing that. Um, uh, I, I imagine this will actually culminate in something at the moment, um, but it's just interesting to see how um, it could very well um, subvert the expectation there with Gwyn and maybe end up doing something a bit different with his character and have him kind of realize what he's doing is wrong um, maybe sooner rather than later but I imagine yeah I feel like there's going to be some sort of come to God moment for him at some point uh, like something has got to give here Laurent carries Sauchet whose feet are sore on his back like I said old habits die hard it is difficult to escape the origins of your birth. No matter how much she seems to go against the grain of what is expected of the daughter of a wealthy family, you have to keep in mind she was born into immense privilege. And it does show here the power dynamics are very telling. I'm not condemning Sasha here. I'm just pointing out the, the power dynamics that are at play and that I think are very intentionally telegraphed to the audience. Uh, last episode, Thal pointed out a great scene where I can't remember who's handing him the letter, but they're handing him a letter. Like, Laurent's on one side of the door, and you don't even see who's handing him the letter, even though you know who's handing him the letter based on context. It just shows the class differential. Like, they're not even occupying the same room as um, one character is handing a letter to be delivered to Laurent. They make it back to the now bombed out and smoldering Heim family estate. Sam and Jessica, beside themselves, break the news to Sasha that her father is dead. Laurent futilely attempts to use the tablet he found in the tournay to save him, but to no avail. Sasha slaps Laurent, yelling, Why did you waste time instead of saving him in the white doll? Yoko Kano's score punctuates Sasha's grief as she runs out, declaring that she needs to return to Nakis to tell her mother and sister of their father's tragic fate. Laurent stops her, 
both break out into tears. Laurent wonders if this was Queen Deanna's doing. Take a shot every time I uh, point out a parallel to First Gundam, but it's very intentional. You remember Gundam Rising, the first episode of First Gundam on side seven. As the Zaku 2s are devastating the colony, there's a missile that hits a group of fleeing civilians. And in that group of fleeing civilians is or are Fraubo's mom and grandfather. And she mourns their loss in a very poignant scene. And I feel like Sashay's grief here reflects Frau's. Like both are very powerful scenes. Yeah, I think I'd, I definitely agree. I, I worry a lot in First Gundam that Frau gets treated as um, sort of, uh, you know, like a, a fragile character or an emotional character, scholar, you know, negative, a negative stereotype of, uh, of femininity. Um, something I appreciate here is I think that Laurent is almost shown to be sort of like too clinical or too mechanical at times. I, I feel like this scene positions like both their responses as being like, on uh, on like reasonable understandable different ends of a spectrum of responses and uh, and I, I really appreciate the way that it kind of weighs them together um and, and then you have to wonder you know how do they go from here because certainly my worry uh after seeing Soche's response here is that she is now going to become uh desperately hungry for power because she thinks that if only i had exercised or someone had exercised this power it would have avoided this tragedy. And of course, you know, down that way lies, uh, I don't know, Darth Vader. Like, you know, you can pick your favorite fictional example. Yeah, I think um, uh, particularly um, what we see here with um, Sochi's response, as opposed to Frau's, which is sort of sad, like she's clearly desperate, but it, it feels like um, like she's very limp um, in her like struggling against Amuro. Whereas here, um, I feel like the the character acting, um, speaking to you know the strengths of the animation and framing, Sochie is in such a wild frenzy that it's like difficult. It's more difficult to understand. Like she might hurt herself. She's running off into nowhere, not towards anything in, in particular, just out into uh, danger, potentially going to no- Noxus, um, which is you know far away, and um, who knows what might happen to her. And Lauren, you know, as a, a child himself. Um, who's also being confronted with this news that this person he knew for years and was sort of a surrogate father for him is dead. Um, uh, his his response is um, maybe not correct, uh, but um, a bit more understandable than, say, Amuro slapping Frau uh, in, in the original Gundam. There's a bit more of an understanding of uh, the larger characterization and how they would uh, interact with one another and what might be appropriate in fiction, I, I guess, um, for, like, the characters. Because, like, um, in Gundam Rising, uh, the, the sort of cruelty of Amuro in that scene can come off, come across as... Uh, it can come across as cruelty, and I don't think that was intended uh, necessarily on Tobito's part um, quite so much as uh, Laurent's uh, response uh, here is um, it also kind of highlights how distracted he is uh, as he thinks was this you know Queen Diana's doing um, because it also you know shakes his fundamental beliefs about this person who he basically revered as a like a deic figure. Um, uh, I think I think it's just a real nice convergence of different things and uh, builds upon you know riffs upon that original Mobile Suit Gundam scene um, while also adding layers and honestly doing it a little bit better. Completely agree. It does make me wonder how important Laurent and Sauchet's relationship 
or maybe lack of relationship in the romantic sense, will be to the overarching narrative of turn A. Because thinking back to first Gundam, even though I do think Frau's a bit underdeveloped and I feel like she's relegated to a very prepackaged role in first Gundam, I feel like their relationship, like the tensions and miscommunications between the two of them, produced for me some of the most meaningful moments in first Gundam. And I wonder if the same will be true of Turne. She definitely has her fans, which makes me believe that she's going to appear prominently throughout the 50 episodes of Turne. Um, I'm just curious. It will that Those 50 episodes, will we see her at Laurent's side, or will they be diverged somehow? Through the night, Kiel watches over her still unconscious or sleeping mother as she recovers. The next morning, she looks out a window of Bostonia Castle. The stark light of day puts the damage into perspective. On the other side of a nearby river, the Moon Race Force regroups to plan their next moves. Lieutenant Phil, one of Poe's superiors, reprimands her. He tells her that, sh- that her actions, that because of her actions, excuse me, she's looking at between 15 and 17 years in prison. However, Phil also tells her that they're too short-handed to lose her, so instead she'll have to redeem herself. Did anyone have Jean on their first Gundam turn A bingo cards? Maybe Slender. Maybe... Oh, who's the third? Denim. Denim. Denim, sorry. Slender, Denim, Jeans. I know, I'm in the presence of the Denim Zaku meme maker, Ethan Hawker. (laughs) The Jaku. It's such a... Uh, I love. I to be fair, I didn't come up with Jaku, and I'll, I'll I'll eternally regret this. These are the circumstances of my birth. <laughs> yeah, but Nine. you did the hard labor, Ethan. Take credit for it. Oh. And I feel like to keep these parallel go- parallels going, and this was pointed out earlier. Like Poe is kind of our gene. Uh, gene opens fire on the colony against orders. Their little squad was only ordered to do some reconnaissance. And when you think about all these parallels, or these parallels and evolutions, it does speak to the more languid pace of Turn A. Like, we're three episodes in, and we're still drawing comparisons to the first episode of 0079. Yeah, the, and you can draw that comparison, too, of course, since now we know that the one of the shots of the Wadham was the shot that hit the house, which is presumably what what did Dylan in, and so that you know, you're able to connect that to uh, you know the missile that hit, for example... Frau's family. Uh, I already mentioned the comparison of Poe to Jared, but I do think this scene kind of reveals a bunch of things. Uh, certainly, we can say that the Moonrace army is either sort of, um, you know, not actually willing to hold its own officers accountable, that they're sort of um, like like the police or somebody to that effect, uh, or that, you know, they're very shorthanded. I mentioned earlier that I'm very curious to know why now. What compelled the Moonrise to come now? Do they have a population problem? Is there some other resource going on? Uh, I'm very, very curious about that. Speaking of more Universal Century comparisons, this is not a first Gundam comparison, but Poe's demeanor and disposition make me think of cyber new types. Steven, you know what a cyber new type is? It's an engineered new type, right? That's right, pretty much. Artificial new type and generally speaking, the process usually leaves a lot of mental damage on the uh, the person involved. They tend not to be particularly stable individuals. 
Four is the character that's most often brought up in this. There's a bunch of them, I think, in Double Zeta as well. Uh, but generally, they, they can be sympathetic characters who are at the same time capable of doing very bad things in very bad moments. And so, I you know, this to me would be the way in which Poe would become sympathetic is that if we discover that, you know, she really shouldn't have been a soldier, but they, they, they boy, they made a soldier of her. And ah, this is, yeah, this is what happened. Um, I don't know if we're getting that. I, I think she's probably going to be more Jared than four. Uh, but it is especially because of the way she uh, bounces between crying about her uh, impending incarceration to uh, very happy and very delighted to go back into the field. Uh, that's like a very quick turnaround, and it, may, it reminds me of that kind of instability. Yeah, I'm curious what their the military might of the moon race is. I'm also curious, are there other people on the moon I uh, did a little research for a meme because I didn't want to be fact-checked by drive-by Gundam ship posters online. But I'm curious. I was. I, I had to ask the question. What you know? We we talked two fees about this, but I needed to do some more fact-checking. Like, what are moon people called? Moon race is the name of a nationality. So, are there more people on the moon? I'm also curious about that. Who operate under other banners or under other governments? Yeah, for some reason, I'm just imagining the Moonanites from uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Oh, um, good point. Around. Um, the, um, I guess uh, this just occurred to me uh, as we were discussing it, but um, the shorthanded reference, um, I, there might be something kind of interesting there in like a societal thing. I'm, I'm wondering if it's something where maybe the military specifically is shorthanded, like lunar people maybe generally aren't equipped uh, to be military. Like there's, the, there's no larger population issue, but... Either um, the moon race aren't equipped to be soldiers outside of a select few, or maybe it's something where it's a purely voluntary military. Um, so only the worst uh, sort of colonizers are the kind of people who um, sign up for it, uh, which would kind of reflect the the idea of like like Koros in in Daitarn can be a cruel figure, uh, but there is a sense that she's constantly kind of trying to reel in some of the the crueler meganoids um, throughout that show, um, or at least the the goofier ones uh mean in their goofiness um so i'm wondering if it's something like that where diana's relationship with the military faction is like a push-pull sort of thing um as much as anything um and we'll get into like deeper political machinations among the moon race this is pure theory crafting um which is is very fun i cannot wait to be incredibly wrong uh and mocked for it uh rightfully so all good questions um it also brings to mind, if you, if you remember the first stretch of episodes in First Gundam, um, there was some emphasis made to, or I guess it was pointed out that Zeon was more was stretched a little thin. Like, I remember when Char had to ask Dozel for some material, and Dozel was very hesitant to give it to him. It seemed they didn't have that many Zaku 2s, at least he didn't have a lot to give him. Um, maybe the Moon Race is in a similar state. Though, Depending on which version of First Gundam you're reading or experiencing, the Xeon War Machine is immense. I don't get that quite that same sense of the Moon Race, who maybe only have like 12 Wadhams. We don't even know. <laughs> Back at the Heim Estate, the family retainers bury Dillenheim and perform hastily prepared funeral rites. Sauchet signs the appropriate paperwork before succumbing to despair as she sprinkles dirt on the casket. Also, for some reason, Keith decided to stop by. 
All right, so there's no such thing as an objective analysis. All crit- I feel like I'm talking to my students here. All criticism is subjective. There's no quantifiable correct take. But sometimes I'll say, take this take with a grain of salt. And I feel like I have to say that here because now that I hate to do the sad dad bit, but now that I'm a father, and you'll hear me say this exact same thing at the start of Gunbuster, I feel like I cannot give level headed reactions to scenes like this. I just get too emotional. Do not trust anything I have to say about The Last of Us. Take all that with a grain of salt. If you ever hear me talking about The Last of Us TV show, I'm just not going to give you a good take because I'm too I'm too dad-pilled. My brain is just fucked up that way. But even if I try to divorce it from the subject material, Sashay's voice actor, uh, Kino Murata, I think really sells it here. Her delivery effectively conveys her anguish. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is. It is uh, continues to be a very compelling performance of grief. Less less emotionally substantive. I do want to note this is like another neat period bit. Neat is maybe the wrong word because it's involving a corpse. But, you know, this is an appropriately Victorian setting. Many things that we have seen indicate as such. Uh, you know, we've seen, you know, sunbathing, lots of big open windows, high ceilings, no air conditioning, hot car seats, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, this is a situation where it, they they have a unexpected body and they have to bury it. Like there's no, there's no embalming fluid. There's no refrigeration. Uh, no one's skating down from the lakes to bring them some ice, some blocks of ice or something. They gotta, they gotta put this in the ground. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I just wanted to point that out too, cause I, I appreciate it as a bit of period appropriate stuff, but it also, uh, you know, underscores the ways in which their behavior is impacted by their level of technology. This is part and part. It's like pulled from a Victorian novel of the times, just like the the lawyer getting the appropriate paperwork signed. There is a, you know, Downton Abbey starts with a similar plot point in that a character has died and then the characters are basically operating around how the inheritance is going to fall out based on legal grounds. And the emphasis placed on the lawyer who needs to get the appropriate paperwork signed, or who I think is a lawyer, he's certainly dressed like one, um, is period appropriate. Poe leads a squad to hunt down the Tournay. Meanwhile, Keith and Laurent, after bathing in the river, review the electronic tablet that Laurent found in the cockpit. Laurent wonders if it really dates back two or 3,000 years. Keith theorizes that it might be something that the moon race made a hundred years ago. After their idle speculation, Laurent catches him up to speed, recapping his participation, or rather lack thereof, in last night's battle. Keith asks outright if he wants to dig out the flat and join up with the Deanna counter. Laurent says he's not going back, explaining that their two-year observation period is up, so they can live anywhere they want to on Earth. He doesn't want to leave his friends on Earth. They get into an argument about running away. Laurent believes that Queen Deanna will quell the tensions when she arrives. Keith is doubtful. I want to sneak in real quick to talk about that shot of Poe jumping into Rawatam, uh, the way that it closes around her. Uh, it's really kind of neat. Like in what, and I say it's neat because I feel like it conveys in a way of like how awful and mass produced it is. It really reminds me of the sensation of closing one of those like shitty college uh, dusts where you have like the little half table and you fold it yeah. over you and it's like super uncomfortable. That's what I imagine getting to is like, that's the mobile suit version of that, uh, which I find really neat. Also the Wadham kind of does like a little Naruto run too. Yeah. 
it's it's pretty endearing. Yeah, the movement of the Wadhams in general is uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, the way it, it kind of sprints around on haunched legs, um, like I don't know some again it very much with the domed head evokes sort of the tripod um but um or just sort of like very classical mechanical design um in a lot of respects but feels again uh timeless in its way very modern um which is a good place to be for your what might end up being sort of the workhorse grunt mech um moving forward who knows this might be the the moon race equivalent of a ball but um i'm excited to see how that that develops moving forward since I'm New Jersey brain poisoned as well, I want to, if I had better Photoshop or image manipulation skills, I would change the Wawa logo to, logo to Wadham and maybe have like a little silhouette of the Wadham. We can commission, we'll find a New Jersey based artist to commission that from. <laughs> yeah, you need to really be immersed in the Jersey <laughs> shit to uh, be able to produce that kind I need, of art. I need my Gundam Wawa parody logo, thank you. <laughs> Well, I've I've been seeing two spellings of the Wadham because the wiki spells it, and the wiki is usually pretty accurate with stuff like this with it with a with two O's, so Wadham. So I was thinking about how jerseys fuck up the pronunciation of water, and then I was thinking, am I pronouncing the Wadham wrong or correctly or vice versa? So that's that's been going through my mind. Not much. What's Wadham? What's what what Wadham with you? What's Wadham with you? I don't know. I almost tried to make that word. Wadham matter with yeah, you? Yeah. What matter with you? I was working. I had go. some notes workshopping memes, but <laughs> nothing as good as what Ethan just said. Uh, I, I I feel like um, maybe I'm misremembering this. I thought Thal kind of did the, the Germanic pronunciation of the W, um, which always mm. it just made me think of uh, uh, Votums, yeah. Votums, mm. the True. vertical or Vonzers um, from Front Mission. Vons. Yeah. Well, I, I think particularly with the with the Votums, it's like is that a thing actually? Cause it made me realize, well, they're kind of like trash can shaped sort of like the, yeah. the uh, scope dog anyways. Mm. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the various bottoms units, um, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, subtweet by, um, uh, Tomino or, uh, Mead towards, uh, Takahashi works. Maybe, probably not. Um, <laughs> but, um, that, that's certainly what that evoked, but I, I yeah, good designs, good stuff, good name. <laughs> you know, speaking of good names, I think the episode name, for this episode is very appropriate. I think it's worthwhile, we haven't mentioned it yet, uh, to point out that two years have passed since the start of the show, which kind of took me aback at first. And in a way, if you take a look at the title, you can use the After the Festival name as a nice demarcation point, like you have Before the Festival and After the Festival, BF and AF, if you want to be clever with it. Like Before the Festival refers to this two-year period of what seems like relative innocence for all our uh, teenage-aged characters, while AF signifies, the st- you know, you have the start of the war, their transition into adulthood, and whatever the fuck happens in the remaining 47 episodes of the show. Also, we, we're talking about lines that stick out. Keith's Can I Be a Baker Someplace Where There's No Fighting rings just as ironic to me as Gwyn's line especially for longtime Gundam fans. Like, there's, you know there's no escaping war. Like, everyone is affected. The home front becomes the front line at some point. Yeah, I really appreciate Keith's input here. Just as, like, because I feel like what, what Keith is representing in his statements to Laron is, like, what, what place is there in this war for someone who doesn't have that power? Like, what place can there be? You know, I can I just be a baker where this isn't happening? And of course, you know, it's war. You don't get to choose that. But I think that's one of the things that he's like impressing upon Laurent is to say like, 
hey, like you have a duty to all of us, not to not just to Deanna or the Himes or or Gwyn, as as we'll discover shortly. Yeah, um, Sid really puts puts it very well. I had to look at it real quick, but he says to negotiate with an unknown enemy, words need to be backed up with force. And I got cosine. I think I agree in that case, especially when they're looking down the barrel of an invading force uh, bent on colonizing them, or what seems to be colonizing them. I quite frankly, I don't know that just yet. Later that day, Laron returns to the Turnay, the area around which is now crawling with militiamen. Laron gets a telegram from Gwyn, which is essentially a draft letter. He's now an official militia soldier. He protests to no avail. Laron and Joseph, Sid's assistant, experiment with the controls, which pick up incoming mobile suits. Laron gets the Gundam into position. End episode. Um, before we end officially, though, there's a few more parallels with First Gundam that I want to point out. It's very good to point out that Laron is dragooned into service much like the crew that would become the white base bridge crew. Uh, the power balance is important. Like, Laron isn't given a choice. He's conscripted against his will. Um, it seems like the power dynamics always play to Laron's disfavor. He's always being subjugated in some way. Ethan, any thoughts about the turn A? It's a spectacular design, I think. I'm not going to bury the lead here, but how do you feel? I, I really like it. Um, I think uh, me, me the design, like as you've mentioned, it's it's very timeless. It's very recognizable as a Gundam immediately while standing out. Like I don't think, like like somebody could theoretically, you know, conflate the uh, RX seventy eight two as depicted in the show and the Mark two um, that sort of thing. Like their their silhouettes are pretty similar. Um, I think Trinity Gundam stands out very uniquely. Um, the head shape. Uh, I, I this uh, struck me as I was looking at it, particularly the the shot you included here, which is sort of a low angle, uh, highlighting its uh, delightful mustache a little bit. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the Japanese monument, the the Tower of the Sun. Um, that sort of iconic um, look, particularly the way the um, head plume uh, is is framed there, sort of as the the tower portion of that. Um, I, I like it a lot. I think the the big thing is um, uh, Mead is t generally known for like his attention to detail. He kind of almost structures the exterior of the Turnay with its. Um, uh, there's a lot of bits that don't seem to directly connect or that um, like aren't built in. Like you see like arc structures where there's free air going through them. Like it kind of it reminds me sort of of the O'Neill cylinder. The idea of things sort of orbiting around a main structure a little bit, um, but in a far less literal sense than something like bits or that sort of thing where they're, you know, literally following the thing around. Um, I, I highly recommend there's a book called um, Mead Gundam. Uh, it's just it's Sid Mead's Gundam art ostensibly, uh, but he didn't do a, you know, a mountain of it. Um, in the traditional sense of like full illustrations because a huge portion of the book is just um, like uh, these his personal notes like handwritten notes and that sort of thing transcribed into Japanese um, in several instances but like a machine translation can kind of get you there uh, as he works out the design of the Turn A Gundam just like a very very detailed process of how he got from uh, point A to point B like just him like noodling around with shapes um, and forms and getting around like what's the shape of this going to be and that sort of thing and it's it's very very um, wonderful look into how he ended up with the design he did um, for the Turn A and also some like some of their designs that you might want to want to hold off on looking at uh, for just in case like I'm I'm not a huge spoilers guy I don't really care about that but um, th there's uh, like one design in particular that might be important to hold off on um, 
but I think well, like once you get to that a uh, little bit further in the show, it's certainly worth uh, looking at at least those earlier pages. Just uh, avert your gaze when you get to like two thirds into the book. Um, but no, I think I think it's wonderful getting to see him uh, make a mobile suit because um, you know he does have such a distinctive uh, mechanical design style um, and seeing that sort of adapted for the world of anime and in animation so wonderfully. Um, another quality of it that I do like a lot is that it's got that distinct silhouette, but it seems very much designed um, so that for like close-ups, there's like greebly bits on it um, that can be from a distance uh, denoted, like simplified into lines um, in a way like like exterior lines in a way that um, you don't quite get with some of the other mobile suit designs. I mean, part of it, it was just like, you know, older shows. Um, there was, you know, less ability to do detail because of uh, animation stuff with like Xeroxing and just time constraints. Um, but like some shots, uh, the turn A looks extremely clean. Uh, and sometimes you see every little node and greeble and like, like that shot of the hand at the very end where you see, um, like a bunch of switches and, um, levers and little bits and bobs that look like it, like, almost like a chainsaw chain on the fingers. It's so strange. Um, but wonderful in that way. I feel like it's a design that lends itself to both um, being incredibly clean, but also highly detailed, which is such a tight line to walk. Uh, sorry, I, I talked about that far too long, um, but I, I just think it's a really good design, um, and I feel like I haven't really appreciated it until I've seen it uh, in animation uh, in its original context, outside of like seeing it, you know, renders for Dynasty Warriors and model kit art and that sort of thing. I think to, I like the point you made about comparing it to the. Power of the Sun. Well, the Power of the Sun, but also the Space Colony, the O'Neill Cylinder spinning. Yes, yes, yeah. Because yeah. um, there is a secular, circular quality to it, which I think is very key to understanding Turn A Gundam, at least from the vantage point of only watch having watched three episodes, because it's very reflective, and you always return back to that same point. And maybe that speaks to the trajectory of Tomino's career. We talked about the how inescapable the origins of your birth are. Well, Tomino really cannot escape Gundam, for better or for worse, and he keeps returning to it again and again and iterating upon it, but he's always coming back to those key points, which I think is what Turn A is all about. I also noticed for the first time, and Fees might have pointed this out the first episode, I can't remember, it was my memory is shit. Um, apologies if he already pointed this out. This is the first time this the the shot that Ethan pointed out uh, the turn a Gundam shot. Um, the mustache resembles a crescent moon, which maybe signals that it has some relation to the the moon people. Um, this is what the key theorizes that maybe they built this. So I'm curious if that's going to be referred back to again. Also, before we wrap this up, I want to talk real quick about the one of Miyazaki's earlier works, Shuna's Journey. Ethan, did you pick up Shuna's Journey? I actually haven't. I remember looking at the old, um, the raw versions of it uh, way back when, um, but I haven't managed to get my hands on a copy of the um, uh, English edition, much to my embarrassment. They're selling it at Walmart, for God's sake. What an exciting time for uh, anime and manga. It's definitely worth a pickup. I've been reading it to my daughter uh, at bedtime. It might not be the most appropriate thing subject-wise because sometimes, you know, my wife walked in, I was talking, reading a page about slavers, and uh, people being dragooned into slavery. But most of it reads like what you'd expect from an early Miyazaki work. The reason why I bring it up here is you open it up, and the first page, the text reads as such. These things may have happened long ago. They may be still to come. No one really knows anymore. 
And when I was first talking about the design of the Turnage Gundam, and really all the designs, the mechanical designs featured in the show, I mentioned that they exude a certain timelessness, um, they, like they could have existed in the far distant past or the far, far future. There's a universal quality to them. And I stand by that assessment. And the turn A in particular embodies these qualities. And I feel like that line really captures that feeling well. Absolutely, yeah. But my friends, we have come to the end of episode three of Turn A Gundam after the festival. We are no longer before the festival. We are now decidedly after the festival. And so we'll see where we go from here. I imagine not great. Uh, Who knows how long I'll be, how much longer I'll be standing Poe. May I just lean into it and just go full sicko mode. People seem really endeared to Poe, so I might be on safer ground than I than I think. Or maybe the fans are fucked up. Who knows? Yeah, I, you might have noticed earlier I was mouthing Poe because I was trying to think about like Japanese pronunciation because of of PMC's point about cyber new type. I was like, would it would it sound like Puru? Would it, would a Japanese person pronounce it like Puru? And I and I don't think quite that, um, but. Like that, that kind of got me thinking a little bit, especially with how extreme her reactions are too. That was a really good point, uh, I think. So, um, it, especially with how endeared people are too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, again, they're anime yeah. fans, uh, so it might just be uh, the evil lady. Uh, <laughs> they do love an evil lady, you know. I, I appreciate women's rights, but I also appreciate women's wrongs. I think someone said on Twitter <laughs> recently. It's funny. PMC <laughs> was not on that call. But we we talked about that same tweet uh, in our. G Witch Core mm. One Retrospective yeah. Part Two. That was a mouthful to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ethan. Any closing thoughts? Uh, really good. Um, uh, episode three is really strong. Um, it's going to be uh, torture because I'm going to try and pace myself, so I'm following along with you guys oh, yeah. as you go <laughs> <Good> through. <luck. laughs> yeah, yeah. I I have um th- three series worth of Gundam and a, and a Shars counterattack to get through in the meantime. Um, so I'm gonna. Well, actually, I guess I could. Um, G Reco would be technically before this. So four four series of Gundams, um, to get through. Uh, plus plus an Overcome King Gainer and a Wings of Rain. If I really want to <laughs> go over that hill, <laughs> um, uh, I actually just got those on DVD the other day. I'm absolutely watching them. I, I paid money for them. Um, but no, I'm I'm really excited for more. Uh, turn a gundam um and excited for the coverage um moving forward it's going to be torture when g witch comes back not that i've been i've been slowly but surely catching up i'm about halfway through the first core of g witch and your guys's coverage um because i was just swamped all last year uh but um it's awful you've made me dread the return of g witch <laughs> um but no, I, for, sincerely, I'm, I'm very excited for more coverage moving forward, because especially, um, I, I hope the, the viewers aren't too upset having the, the internet's uh, biggest brain, Gundam, uh, Turn A Gundam Genius, on the first episode. Uh, and and that's, I mean that completely sincerely, Fees. Um, just an absolute... Like, I made some offhand comment about how the god, the white doll statue kind of looked like writing, and Fees immediately jumped in. Like, uh, the creators recognized that people would probably think that, but it was not intentional. Like, just <laughs> on it. And of course, Thal, who's always a, uh, a font of wisdom um, and uh, general academic mindedness, despite uh, his own his own wealth of knowledge of Tomino stuff. He's a bit more of a filter about it than me, um, which I'm sure the viewers approve of but um no I'm, I'm glad i was able to join you guys on this journey and i can't wait to hear more of your guys's thoughts uh moving forward with uh all the wonderful folks you're going to have here thank you 
before PMC, you, you teed up PMC brilliantly to promote our podcast. But PMC, before I actually throw it back to Ethan to promote him, any any final turn A episode three thoughts? Uh, I'm very excited to see what Loran, uh, I'm, I, I mean, look, I want to see what, what combat with the turn A looks like. I want to, yeah, true. I, I look, I'm sorry, folks. War is cool. The big robots are great. I want to see what it looks like when it fights. Co-signed. I also want to see what it looks like when it's doing laundry, but we'll get to that point. <laughs> I want the house moving castle version of the turn A. I do, oh, I guess I didn't make that. I can't remember if you guys refer- referenced this before, but um, with uh, Sid appearing, I do wonder if this is going to be the Gundam where the the white base is an airship. Mm. Um, I don't. I do, again. I have very little knowledge of Turn A, so please don't make fun of me. <laughs> please, internet people, uh, don't call me a nerd and give me a swirly. Um, but no, uh, that'd be really cool, and I feel like pretty period appropriate. Um, so I'd be down for uh, airship white base. Totally. But, uh, oh, I guess this is the part of the show where I, I plug myself again. <laughs> um, so you can find me at Twitter, uh, at sundown underscore McMoon, uh, uh, where I uh, talk about brain-powered. Um, and, and also I have a Turn A Gundam thread, which I ba- basically just put in. That sure does look like the thing from writing, um, but I actually do want to give my thoughts there, too. So if you want to hear my thoughts moving forward um, outside of uh, this wonderful program, uh, you know where to find them. Uh if that's anything you're interested in. I also do art and other things um, there. Uh, if you want to find my writing work, you can find it at seekfilm.org. Um, there will be more stuff there, I promise. Jim, don't kill me. Uh, and if you want to hear me talk about Tomino, again, um, I don't have a hard date. Uh, watch that Twitter space uh, for my anime St. Louis panel on early Tomino works. And if you want to hear a bit more about stuff like writing and Daitarn um, and Zambot 3, uh, that's the place to go. Um, and lastly, of course, Bomb Squad Productions. Um, they w- would kill me if I didn't promote them here. Uh, um, lots of people out for blood today. Uh, but Bomb Squad Movie Nights is a movie night. I always add the S. I don't know why. Um, is our bread and butter. Uh, and we do a lot of good stuff. Our uh, editor, Austin, uh, puts in a full work week of editing. And I'm going to, <laughs> I think I've mentioned that specific detail on every cast. And I'm, I'm ob- obligated to continue that trend because it's way too much work. He, um, but doing a lot of motion graphic stuff and uh, uh, plussing up uh, our commentary um, on a variety of things, including anime titles. Uh, but that's the long and short of it, mostly the long once again. Um, thank you again for this opportunity. It was a treat to talk to you guys about uh, giant robots uh, and Tomino. Absolutely. Now, of course, you can find all of those links uh, in the show notes below. Uh, I'm going to go ahead straight into my plug segment and steal the train. So, if you want to support Giant Robot FM directly, there are some great ways you can do that. You can leave us reviews on Podcatchers. You can, you know, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, etc. We are an independent podcast. We always appreciate your direct feedback. If you want to support us monetarily, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giant robot FM, where you can check out several cool things, a patron exclusive Discord. We have a series of bonus podcasts. This is one of those series. So if you're listening to this, your chances are you are a patron. Thank you for your patronage. This, of course, is a bonus podcast, uh, which right now is Moonrace Wireless. will be returning to weekly coverage of The Witch from Mercury when that returns to the airwaves, potentially in April. We don't have a firm date yet. We'll cover that when we cover that. Uh, we also have another series of podcasts called Simulator. Uh, that is a tier where we are doing mecha video games the same way that we do mecha anime. So we've done Armored Core, Zordion, 
Front Mission. We are working on a frame grind episode right now. If you want to know what that's like, you can find the Armored Core episodes and the Zarnia episode over on the main feed for free. Check it out if you really like it. Support us at that level. That'll give you access to the two Front Mission episodes and soon enough, the Frame Grind episode, which of course again is the 1999 Dreamcast exclusive from Software Fantasy Mecha game. Pretty cool. Pretty neat game. Uh, it's worth playing. There's an English translation patch for it. We also want to mention on the main feed that we will be uh, continuing right now. Uh, we're doing the two which the two part G which coverage, uh, just an overview, and then we'll be moving over into uh, the the long promised G Savior coverage, uh, covering the f- production history, the PS2 game, the film, uh, and some other goodies and treats that you can look forward to. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use, and credit to Fretzel hashtag Band Fretzel for the music that we use. To end conclusively, I just want to echo. PMC's famous words, etch this in a stone, etch this in a throw pillow. I always fuck up the endings. Quote, the pilot is stored in the balls, end quote. <laughs>